I met her in a nightclub. working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. Oh, boy. I hope you're recording that <laughs> shit right there. The following podcast may contain spicy adult language, sensitive topics, and dangerous ideas. If you're delicate and easily offended, you may want to tune in elsewhere. Also, maybe just take a nap. You're also more than welcome to complain directly to the management via email. If it's entertaining enough, we might even read it on the podcast and mock you mercilessly. If outrage continues for more than four hours, please consult a physician. All right, here we go. What is up, gangsters? Welcome to episode number two of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast. I'm Will Pattison. Almost forgot to say that. And I'm here with my partners in crime, Mr. Chris Meddings, who's the boss of this whole outfit, and Mr. Tracy Hancock. What's up, guys? Ahoy, hoy. Yeah, never do that again, Chris. I'm going to do that every time. Can you edit that out? (laughs) You're not my real dad. (laughs) There went half of our of our listeners. (laughs) Oh, come on! If we lost them that quickly, come on. But hey, you know what? We're doing pretty good, right? Like I was. I mean, we were checking the downloads, and we were at 842 downloads after. I mean, today it's 10 days. It'll be, you know, uh, since since our, our, our debut episode. And I don't really, I, I had no idea what to expect. But 842 seems like a pretty dope number to start with. I mean, I, I don't know. We're not, you know, we're not. I'm, I'm over the moon about that. Are you kidding? Well, we weren't really too bothered about having a big audience. But at the same time, 842 people wanting to listen to your shit is, is always good, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Hopefully 841 of them didn't listen for five minutes and go, fuck this. <laughs> I don't care. We got their click. <laughs> we, hey, we know that at least three of those downloads are, are, are not going away because it's us. Yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. I'm, I'm stoked. I, I, you know what? I feel like we, we, we're, we're off to a pretty good start. I feel like we're, you know, it's, it's a fun thing already. And, and that it's been uh, pretty well received, um, and you know we're we're in the podcast space. Yeah, we just stepped right out there and got into it, didn't we? And it's and it's it's a busy space. Uh, I mean, we it's so busy that uh, so now you know with the other podcasts on the bench, Triple P, all those guys, they've kind of had this tradition going of mentioning all the other podcasts, which is cool. It's great. We need to pimp each other and drive the listenership. But that list is getting long, and I think we might have been the uh, straw that broke the camel's back. And so now we need to let everybody know that there's a place you can go to find links to all the podcasts. And that is at, let me make sure I get this correct, because uh, Stuart at Scale Model Podcast was kind enough to set this up. And the web link is modelpodcasts.com. And so basically everybody who's participating in this has got a link on there and you can go and find all of the delicious sounds that you are looking for about scale modeling. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a really nice resource to have out there, you know? Yeah, only one place. Yeah. Yeah. Very handy. Yeah. I listened to the new um, On the Bench, uh, I think it was yesterday. That was a great show. And uh, I know the, you got you got lots of nice pimping. Tracy, unfortunately, yeah. is just that guy who makes pizzas. Yeah, he's gonna have to send pizza everywhere. 
Hey, I've seen pictures of those pizzas, and I would take that title. I still, <laughs> I still want you to. I'm going to convince you. Give me a year. I'm going to convince you to send me one of those pizzas. I will enjoy you spinning your wheels for a whole year while I do Okay, I'll tell you what. This pizza. is our deal. If we make it to a year, all right, if we make this thing this to a like year. sounds like a deal you're crafting without anybody else's input. I, it's a good deal. I mean, come on. If we make it to a year, we celebrate. We if celebrate. we make it to a year. I'll come to the US, we'll get together and we'll have pizza. Wow. Okay. That's that's a big deal. Well, you know, assuming COVID still doesn't stop anyone flying anywhere. Well, and hey, you know what? That's about the right time for uh because I think so the IPMS nationals are gonna be in uh, Omaha next year. The year after it's is when they're coming back to Texas, which I could see myself doing. I plan to do so. Easy. I don't think I'm allowed in Texas. East Coast boy. I don't think I'm welcome in Texas either. <laughs> Texas, Texas is a friendly place. It's all good. Is it Austin? Austin's all right. Austin is Austin is weird enough for the three of us. It's good. <laughs> and 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 San Marcos, which which is where they'll have it, is just like you know, like just a, a, a few miles from there. So. We could get together with our boy Matt McDougal, who is going to be our uh, our interview segment for today, right? Uh, for part two of that, and it is thick and meaty. So I hope everybody brought a you know a big plate and a sharp knife. Yeah, there you go. Big plate, sharp knife, meaty. Got it. The food. <laughs> Are you hungry, Will? Yeah, pizza, steak. Come on. Yeah, look, I always am. I always am. Hey, and 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 uh, this is probably a good time for us to talk about guests that are coming up soon, right? Right. Yeah, we've yeah, already absolutely. got some interviews um, recorded. Yes, this season on the Sprue Cutters Union podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this season we've got well, we got uh, part two from Matt's interview today. And then we've got uh, a UK comedian and historian Al Murray two weeks after. And then two weeks after that, we've got uh, David Parker from AFV Modeler and uh, Ming Air Modeler Magazine. And, yeah. Uh, those are some really good interviews, man. You're and, not going to want to miss those for sure. Yep. And we're getting the madman himself, Fanch Lubin of Fanchaleros Models. We're getting him lined up. Uh, that's going to probably be after uh, Mr. Parker, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got a pretty good list. We got a little, little bit of an all-star. Uh... There's some other people I can't talk about yet, but they're they're big names. They're interesting people. They've got a lot to talk about. So uh, yeah, keep listening. Yeah, I feel like the the people that we want to talk to are the people that you want to hear more from. So. I think we're going to be delivering the goods for you. Yeah, we want to bring a, you know, we want to bring the good stuff to you guys. Uh, not that everybody else is not also bringing good stuff, but you know, our thing is is going to be these interviews, and uh, we're going deep. So uh, I think it's going to be good. Speaking of the other guys, uh, so what we did our drop on Friday for our first episode because we thought that was the a clear day, and it was my fault, bad math. I just was not paying attention, and we dropped right on top of. The scale model mojo guys sorry dudes didn't mean to do that but we're going to drop on saturday now right isn't that going to be our deal chris that's right yeah and i did listen to the uh the, the model mojo show it's a great show as well so go out there and listen to that yeah, those yeah guys we're moving so that we don't um crash their party and saturdays from now on right right hopefully 
we're clear on that one. If there's anybody else who's going on, you know, anyway, I, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I don't think like for me, when I download, that's not the day I necessarily listen to it. That's just when I start. So I may listen to, you know, 30 minutes of it here and 15 minutes of it there, but still, you know, we don't want to be stomping on anybody else's parade. So, so, so I want to know what the fuck is happening on your workbenches. What are you guys doing? What's up? What are you working on? Chris has got some exciting stuff going on that he's going to tell you about, but I am working on a project for him that I can't really tell you much about. Oh, I see. Um, See how it is. Yeah, you can. Go on. You can even tell me. No, not yet. You haven't let the, I'm not letting the cat out of your bag. That is You're going to do that. Yourself. I feel really left out right now. That is I've, I've got an armor project on the bench that's that's uh painted and is now in the eternal pen washing stage uh because I'm one of those guys that actually puts a pen wash around the details and not the technique where you put the wash over the whole thing and then come back and clean it up. Sludge right. wash versus pen wash. Right. So, it's uh it's time consuming. Yeah. Um but uh, there's one thing that I, I, I think that would be a fun topic for us to talk about at some point was, uh, is that armor modeling is easy compared <laughs> to aircraft modeling. Uh, that's <laughs> a whole big bag of bullshit. Yeah, no, it's not. No, it's not. How many seams are on an armor model? The barrel. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So look, I don't. We we should not take that bait right now. But I have a question. Okay. What? Oh, I'm champing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> look, that's we we have stuff for today. That by itself is an episode. So, but I'm curious because uh, so you know, there's this trope that runs around. You must have a gloss finish for pin washes, and I you know have always called bullshit on that because it's just simply not true. What's your where are you at, Tracy, with your pin washes? Gloss or no gloss? Uh, I mean, I, my, the paint finish by the time I'm ready for a pen wash is probably already kind of a satin, Yeah. Um, but you can work with whatever you got. Yeah, absolutely. So, so how is your, so you, wh- why is your paint already satin by that point? I mean, it's just, you know, the, the finish that Tamiya gives you, which is generally yeah. what I use for, for, I mean, I use Tamiya paints for, for camouflage. I use oil paints for my weathering and I use life color paints for picking out my details, road wheels, things like that. That's just are kind you, of the way I do it. So are you running lacquer thinners in your Tamiya? Uh, it depends on what I'm trying to do, but most of the time now. Really? Uh, yeah. Just X, X20 is fine. Oh my uh, No, you mean X20A, right? Yeah. I got to be that guy. Cause a lot of people don't realize X20 and I don't know why Tamiya as good as they are at paying attention to details would do this. X20 is their enamel thinner that is largely only available in, in Asia. Right, Chris? I mean, I've well, never that seen really it. confuses non-Japanese people who don't pay attention to the A bit. Right. But, but it happens. It happens all the time. I've never seen X20 in the UK. I don't know if it's sold here or not. I don't think I've seen a Tamiya enamels here, actually. Pretty much an Asian thing. So, But yeah, it's a, it's an enamel thinner, which means that it's not pure mineral spirits. That's someone that I always... Yeah, sorry, I'm getting all chemical chemistry nerd right now anyway. Right. So, I mean, if I'm if I'm trying to do hairspray chipping with Tamiya paint, I I use a uh, lacquer thinner for that. They're Tamiya lacquer thinner. Interesting. So you go with the more durable version of the paint when you're actually going to break it off. Yeah, it gives you, I mean, when you're actually getting in there and working those chips, it gives you the finest 
most yes. subtle chips that you can yes. use. That's 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 true. That's true. Yeah, lacquers like MRP, you get much smaller, smaller chips. And like Rinaldi says, you can never have chips too small. Yeah, I mean, I I did a little work on the mufflers of this tank, even though they're covered up in the end, just because that's a fun place to play. And I used that's the only place I've used hairspray. Um, but I also, interestingly enough, used uh, isopropyl alcohol to do some chipping as well instead of water. And it gave a nice uh, kind of a real subtle wear, like a, a, almost a scraping mm-hmm. uh, kind of removal of the paint rather than uh, random kind of chips. It Sorry, was- can I just rewind you a little bit there? Are you using Tamiya lacquer or Tamiya acrylic paint? Acrylic acrylic and the the alcohol doesn't strip it off well yeah that's the point I'm, i've got a hairspray layer no it's but i mean if i put ice, isopropyl on top of any the tummy it would take off literally everything not just the chips it would right, strip but it you, I mean, the same way you would um you would use water for chipping you, you basically um i put the brush in the ipa and then i dab the brush on a paper towel so i'm not attacking the paint with oh, so it's very little it sort of chemically abrades it. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Rinaldi talks about that in his books with using Windex. Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, John Tolcher's technique that he... Right. That he, and Mike is always great about uh, naming the, the source. That, that was John Tolcher's technique to use a little Windex. And it's the same principle. You've got to be really careful with it. Um, and much like chipping with anything else, as soon as you see chips happen, move, yeah. to, move to another place. Don't so we've going. we've even got a guy in SMCG, uh, Shane Doak, who is also the admin of the Edward Group. Uh, he's been doing it with with. Uh, <laughs> I think he probably found this out by accident. He's been doing it with uh, decal softener, oh, which okay. which, oh, yeah. which makes sense because most de- as far as I know, all these decal softeners are just some form of of alcohol blend. Well, it's going to be a solvent, isn't it? If it if it softens decals, so yeah. Oh, don't get me started on what's a solvent now, Chris. You know how I am about that. All right, chemistry, Bob. <laughs> I wonder if vinegar would work. I. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the I dust mean, made me laugh because Al Murray mentioned it last show. You remember? Um, yeah. And he right. showed me where he'd been. He sent me some photos of something he'd worked on, and it creates a really interesting crackled paint effect. It's definitely something worth playing around i mean your model will smell but you know it's definitely worth playing around <laughs> you're, trying stuff out. you're right every time i open my my two-year-old jar of decal water i think of pickles see there mm, i am with french fries. well chips that's right you guys eat your french fries with vinegar which is actually pretty good well we eat our chips with vinegar they're not french fries okay but i digress we're back on food so yeah uh, I tried for chipping with chipping fluid. It works pretty well, but it's a real, um, Will might not like it because it's a bit of a high risk strategy, is the, what they call Infini model polishing cloths. The really high yeah. grip ones. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite the polishing one, but sort of the 2000 one. And just gently rub the model. And you'll find that the hairspray is ever so slightly raised, slightly more in the paint. And it just takes the top off it. No, are you but kidding? It, yeah, that's my favorite strategy. That's not high risk. Really thin, and also puts a really nice blur on the edge of the of the chip. Absolutely, so it's not just shaped chip. It fades out as it goes by. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's I really use easy to get back to the plastic if you're not careful. <laughs> no, that's that. That's my favorite strategy because mm. it produces that abrasion 
that typically leads into an area of actual paint flaking. Right. So I, I, I do that first. Uh, and and I, I think it's much more controllable than any of the chemical abrasion methods that I've ever tried because I just end up with a muddy mess when I try that. So, the effect's uh, really on scale as well. And, but and, I love know, this infinity cloths because, I mean, they'll literally wrap around your finger like you're doing it with your finger. They're mm-hmm. so soft and so stretchy. They're that's really where cool. I that's where I put a little like I cut little little blocks of Infini sanding sponge and and put them in my gripper tweezers, so yeah. I have like a three millimeter square little sanding foot and I can work you know with ultimate control in any little area that I want to to produce that abrasion. And control is what it's about, right? It's absolutely right. Absolutely, uh, it, it's control, but it's also the randomness of it, creating um, the chaos yeah. within the pattern. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, you know, if you're going to control everything, you may as well just go back to using a brush. When I say control, I mean, um, I do use a brush. When I say control, <laughs> I mean uh, putting it where you want it, not in other places because you're using something too rough and too yeah, difficult right. to control and stuff like that. Controlling yeah. the process. And stopping it when you want it to stop, not going yeah. too far and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, use, I still use a brush as well, but it's with oil paint and, you know, mm. I've, I've sort of worked out what I like to do with that to create wear and patina and stuff like that. Good stuff, man. Well, Chris, what are you working on? I'm working on a scratch built 135th um, Renault D1 tank, 1935, 36 tank. It's gloriously ugly. So uh, good fun. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've, I've seen the progress that you're making. The vehicle itself is gloriously ugly. Your work is just glorious. It's because yeah. really, well, it, really it looked like a box. I thought a box is easy. Just do a box. But the turret is not a fucking box. No, it's, it's got not. so many compound curves and stuff on it that I've had to redo it twice. But, uh, you know, as they say, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing right. So, yeah, that's just OG scratch work right there. I'm, I'm just jelly. I don't, the, you know, that the, the finish, just the, 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 yeah, yeah, it looks good. It's professional. It's nice. Well, I'd be like, like it. I enjoy the finish more than anything. Just trying to make it look as unhandmade as possible, if you see yeah. what I mean. Yeah. And also trying to polish it and prepare it so that when paint goes on, there won't be any nasty little surprises. And... Yeah, I mean, it's... that's what primers for, Mister Mister Matt. Oh, I will prime it. Primer finds the last, but you know, you good craftsmanship is ninety percent of it, and then the primer will pick up the ten percent, especially on white plastic because you can't see shit on white plastic. Oh, drives me yeah. crazy. But I mean, kudos to you for vacuum forming your tur- your turret shell. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's just pretty old. Yeah, I've got a vacuum former, and it costs money, so I'm going to use it. So, did you, you carved a, a wooden uh, a plug to, to vacuum form over? No, I made a um, sort of a skeleton in plastic card, which is a generally a bad idea for vacuum forming. But I thought I could get away with it because I wasn't heating the plastic too much, and yeah. then I filled it with Tamir epoxy putty and polished it and what have you if i was doing a canopy it would be all putty because i've done it before and when you heat the the petg for clear canopies it gets very hot if you want it nice and thin and if your master's got plastic in it when you pull it over the form it will melt the plastic Mm. which deforms it so you need to make sure that it's relatively heat resistant you can have plastic inside as long as there's a shell of putty over it so uh, for canopies and what have you you have to be a lot more careful but because this wasn't going to get that hot because the form's quite a, a relatively simple form. I didn't worry about it too much. I just made the, you know, save money on putty, use plastic art. And you're even doing the tracks from scratch too, right? 
Yeah, I did four. I've tried to cast them in white metal, and the only result I got from that was a burn. <laughs> but luckily not too hot um it just wouldn't penetrate them all because i don't have a centrifuge so i've sent them off to a friend of mine who casts resin and he's got a degassing chamber and he'll uh you know pressure pot and he'll um cast them up for me because well, the, mad respect I could make 160 but they won't all look the same and they must look the same so yeah chris are you gonna actually completely finish the model are you taking it to paint and weathering the whole nine yards or do you know what? This is the first model I was thinking, do I want to paint it or do I just want to seal it? Because if you don't seal white plastic, it goes yellow and brittle. Yeah. Um, but I just, I will, I think I'll paint it. A model's not a model till it's painted and weathered. You know, people always say, oh, it's a shame to cover it up. No, it fucking isn't. Painting's <laughs> That's what pictures are for. You can have both. You can have yeah. pictures of the unfinished thing and all of that glory. Well, this is for a book, so it'll all be documented anyway. Very cool. Very cool. What about you, Will? Yeah, well, I'm still I'm still in in uh, Hasaga or Edwagawa, uh, 132nd P40 land. I'm getting I'm I'm getting closer to the finish. I uh, have got everything covered in a nice layer of GX113, which is my favorite ungloss, and it's all ready for oil oil work. And I have had some requests for some videos on OPR for aircraft. So I've got all the parts ready for that. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm going to try and, and do some of that on video. Should be a disaster. <laughs> Will that be on your Patreon or? Uh... No, I'll just do it on my YouTube channel um, okay. and try to break it into segments that are less than 10 hours long each. <laughs> this is going to sound like a setup, but what's your YouTube channel? It's just under my name. It's, it's just under my name. It's just Will Pattison. Um, I think we got a link for all of our all of our social media shit in the description of this podcast, right? I'll make sure that that's right. Yeah. So yeah, I you know, and I man, I hate trying to work on camera because I suck at it so bad. Um, and I, you know, so apologies to anybody who tries to watch that. But yeah, I'm going to try to do that because uh, they're, you know, they're, they're all the OPR stuff that's out there is all armor stuff, really. Yeah. And there's some quite bad stuff out there too. Yeah, true, true. Um, I feel like I at least get good close-ups, although it's usually of the back of my knuckles, apparently. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. Hopefully that'll go well. But uh, the thing that I've been doing that I think might be interesting to listeners is I've been, I have continued to um, get more and more next to acrylic ink. And it, dudes, I know I sound like some kind of cultist, but every time I find a new material that just has magic properties, I just get all excited about it. And these acrylic inks, and, and they're made by Liquitex and I think Games Workshop. And, you know, there's there's different different brands out there, obviously. Windsor Newton makes their own. Um, but I've been just using all Liquitex just to stay consistent. And they are fantastic. Um, they're like a weird uh, intersection between pure, you know, just regular acrylics and oils for me uh, in the way that they operate. They just, uh, and they're super thin and, and the pigment density is extremely high. So they're very powerful. And so the range that they have is, is immense. Like I, I've used them on my last uh, bust painting exercise. I used them straight to paint eyeballs. And had a level of control I'd never experienced before. And then uh, I've been using them on the belly of the 40 to illustrate all of the dirt that gets collected, you know, from driving around a 
you know, a runway, a dirt runway in Burma. And so applying it with a sponge and, you know, mixing it into a really thin glaze with IPA does a lot of weird and wonderful things. Um, and then even being able to airbrush it so that it's got a density that's almost barely visible. I, I, I know I'm going on and on, but it, I love it. It's just cool shit. It Ever. looks pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I've been looking at it and wondering exactly how you're applying it. Um, I mean, it, it's not like OPR where you're you're putting the color right where you want it and working it into the surface. You're actually, it is though. Uh, it is actually. Yeah. And I, I do a lot, even of even OPR work, I do a lot with sponges. The sponges are one of my favorite applicators. And so what I'm doing with, with these acrylic inks is I mix it, you know, into a, a like I said, a glaze. And I'm talking about like just, you know, a few drops of ink to a whole bunch of IPA. And controlling the density, you know, allows you to vary the effects real easily. And then I just dip a sponge in it and wick it out on a paper towel. And how much you wick away, you know, has an effect also. And you'll find that, like, you guys know how mineral spirits will wick and and flow in a certain way, right? Like even the difference between regular hardware store mineral spirits and the like odor Windsor and Newton odorless, for example, they flow and 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 wick very differently. Well, IPA, especially on top of a lacquer, does its own weird thing, and I can't even really describe it. But but, but the more you sort of work it with the sponge, you go from sort of this puddle to smaller and smaller little speckles and they get to a certain point where they just set. And so you can get these almost chip like shapes, if that makes sense. So yes, I am working it in much the same way that I would oils, but the results are are different. I think we need to see a video of this for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to describe, uh, but it is, it is super cool. Um, I sort of discovered it by accident a long time ago when I was just using some Windsor and Newton Indian ink. And I was like, ah, I just need to make a wash. What can I use here? And I and I stuck it on something and I was like, wait a minute. That's not what I expected. So, you know, one of those happy chemistry accidents. Well, it's like that conversation that came up about pin washes where you were talking about, uh, you, you asked uh, Tracy earlier, but also I saw you talking online about it um, with people saying that um, it's crazy to do a pin wash on a matte coat and you must be an arm modeler if you do your pin wash yeah. on a matte <laughs> they have different effects and once you know what the effects are it doesn't really matter yep. whether they behave the same way both ways what matters is how 100%. you use it and how you like to use it i mean i like pin washes that bleed out onto the surface so they sort of fade away from it they're not dead sharp yep. um yep. and it's particularly good for dust you can do a pin wash with dust then and it really does look you know a light color and it really does look like dust mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it kind of it kind of self blends in a way. It comes back to what we were saying last last show about material. You just got to know your materials, haven't you? Really? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you have to know what you're working with, and the best way to do that is practice on something that's not important to you, or or you know, if you're working on a tank, flip it over on its belly where nobody's ever going to see it, and and dick around with it. Um, I I try weathering techniques on the back of the road wheels. Who's ever going to see them? Yep, right. and also. The material doesn't know the what it was designed for. You know, it's just the material doesn't know what the YouTube channel how that says you should use it. It's just the material, so you don't have to 
use it the way it's recommended. You can find new ways to use it, play around with it, experiment. Yeah. Experiment, practice, discover. I feel like that a lot of modelers just don't do that. You know, the idea of having a paint mule is like, what? You know, it just never occurred to him to practice this stuff. And I, I find it invaluable. But but back to the gloss versus matte thing. I mean, you know, if, for guys who have never really considered it, a gloss is going to give you really tight pin washes. It, I mean, they obviously are going to flow better for the most part on a gloss surface. Um, you know, if you get the density of the wash itself right at that sweet spot. But I often find that, like, I use Tamiya Panoline washes whenever I can because they're just right there, you know, ready to use, and I'm lazy as fuck. So I'm not going to mix one with oils if I don't have to. But I find that depending on how deep you put the brush in the bottle sometimes, the viscosity changes. And and, and you put it on your model and you expect to see this, you know, wash zipping along these panel lines, and it just sits there in a little blob. And you're like, shit. And so you end up having to clean off the excess no matter what. And I think people are afraid of, of cleaning panel line washes off of a matte finish because they think it's harder to do. And, and, and I find that it's really not. To me, it ends up being about the same. Well, at the same token, it's easier for me to mix up an oil wash than it is to... If you, and if you need a specific color, you got to, right? Yeah, but I mean, just... You know, I'm looking at my palette right now. I got some some raw umber and some raw sienna. And, you know, I can get as dark as I need to if I'm just using the, uh, the umber. Um, and I can sort of temper it a little bit. You know, that's that's a fun place to play, too, is, you know, the, Absolutely. to create yeah. your shadows, heavier shadows on the underside of your fenders and things like that with, with that darker color. And, you know, I'm not one of those guys who uses the the zenithal lighting technique or anything like that. I, mean, just, I paint the camouflage and then I paint and I do the weathering. I'm just saying like, if like I use straight black for certain things on my panel lines. And so I'm not going to get out my ivory black tube if I don't have to, because I got a, you know, I got that Tamiya that's right there. And then I have the light gray. So if I need a gray tone of, you know, any, any version, I just, I'm going to use the Tamiya stuff because it's just right there ready for me. It does yeah. depend what you're using as well, though. I wouldn't use um, like a wash made with acrylic paint on a matte surface because you might get tide marks. Yeah, that's a good point. That Acrylic washes are a whole other subject. Yeah, I should have prefaced this that I'm talking specifically about mineral spirits based washes whether they're enamel or you know come out of a tube of oil paint for sure yeah it's interesting to see people who exclusively use uh acrylic and can get almost the exact same results as as i'm getting with oils Mm -hmm. Uh, to me that's just bonkers witchcraft Um, (laughs) yeah a little bit yeah or or it's a chemistry class that i skipped you know they do their own weird thing. I've been playing with acrylic washes more this year than in the past. You know, I always had that idea, like a lot of guys, that acrylic washes are verboten because you can't remove them. But then I found this trick. And so I, I've been messing with acrylic washes more than ever. And they do their own neat thing. Interestingly, oils and enamel washes and things taught me how to do acrylics better. Also reading um, figure painting books and stuff like that, that it, I apply, I use acrylics now the same way I use oils in extremely thin glazes where it's 
really just mm -hmm. tints and building it up. And that's good for a panel yeah. wash as well, because you don't want to go too dark right off the bat sometimes. And, you know, it's better mm -hmm. to build it up. But yeah. I use acrylics now, like I use oils. And okay, they're not as flexible, but you can get the same, you can get the same effect. It's just a different... Yeah, I think that's really important for figures, mm. you know, for painting faces. Yeah. Is to understand that the, the thinner, you know, a nice thin glaze is what you're looking for. You're not, you're not really applying the paint in its looking for its final form with the first coat. We should get a figure painter on to talk about this for sure. No, oh, we should for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I you know, I, I'm terrible at figure painting, but the stuff that I've learned from trying to paint figures that's transferred over to my other model making is, is I mean, it's, it's been, I think pretty important stuff. It's part of a well-rounded modeler's education, right? Yeah, absolutely. Got to, got to, got to pay that tuition in, in all those classes for sure. So you brought up something, Chris, there, uh, you know, the difference and, 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 and uh, Tracy alluded to this a little bit earlier too. Um, the differences between aircraft and armor modelers. And this is a fascinating topic and um, it kind of came up. Uh, it's, it's timely because, uh, you know, Dukes is, is our interview guest for round two uh, here. And he, after we interviewed him for the last one, he published a new essay on his blog, which I thought was fantastic. And it's called Airplanes and Assholes. <laughs> <laughs> and in typical Dukes fashion, he has wordsmithed the shit out of it. And, he, you know, he makes some very compelling points that I find it hard to disagree with. And his basic premise is uh, armor modelers are nicer. So let's run with that. What do you guys, you know, what's, uh, you, you guys, I think are more armor modelers than you are aircraft modelers, right? You seem pretty nice. Well, all well, armor modelers are nice. All um, <laughs> communities have assholes, that's for sure. But uh, sure. having edited a, an aircraft, the, the UK's biggest aircraft magazine for a year, been an armor modeler for a long time and been a ship modeler, ship, Pup, pup, pup. Wait, did you yeah. say shit or shit? Well, both. Let's be, let's be honest, both. <laughs> uh, I'm like, no, you're not a shit modeler. It's true. Armor modelers are nicer than aircraft modelers in my experience. <laughs> let's, Direct your hate mail to the Sprue Cutters Union at gmail.com. Yeah, send us your, send us your hate. Yeah, yeah, it's out there. Yeah, I mean, clearly we're generalizing, but um, that's kind of been my experience too. Well, let's talk about why. Why do you think that is, Tracy? Well, I'm the least informed of the three of us because I haven't been to a, a local IPMS meeting in uh, a decade to 15 years. Well, you're way ahead of me because I've never. There's not an IPMS chapter within 500 miles of my At house. I do go to a, an IPMS club once a month, IPMS A1. And it's not yeah, true I, at the I, club, I have to say. They're all nice. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be, again, there's assholes everywhere and in every group, uh, just like there are really wonderful people in every group. And I, I haven't been to a, a competition in the U.S. since the Nats in Atlanta in 2005, maybe. I just, I do my thing by myself. And then whenever I get ready to do anything remotely uh, around other modelers. It's more of a social thing uh, like scale model challenge where everybody there is pretty positive about what's on the tables and 
You know, they're eager to talk to you about what you've been doing and how you did certain things. And it's just, it's a different, and this is not about aircraft modelers or armor modelers. This is veering over into the difference between uh, the competitions in, in Europe and the competitions in America. And the competitions in Europe are friendlier by leagues and bounds, to be honest. Well, I, I think what Dukes is really, I mean, he's on about online, you know, Yeah, I think stuff. internet's where I see it the most for sure. Yeah, but I also, again, like, it's like water off a duck's back. Like, I just keep scrolling. Yeah. You know, my, my this is kind of a, a, maybe a different way to think about it. My Facebook feed is entertainment for me. And if something stops being entertaining for me, then I just get rid of it. You know, if you're for them, if you're, you know, if I'm, a part of a group and it's just nothing but drama and, and it brings nothing to the table or it brings too much drama to the table or, you know, whatever. I just, I leave, you know, I'm, I'm connected with individuals who are inspiring and constantly posting things that are, you know, th that I can talk to them about. And, and, you know, that's how my, my modeling mojo keeps going is through individual people. But again, most of those guys are armor guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I have not uh, run in uh, like Facebook armor circles nearly the way that I have in aircraft centric circles. So my experience may not be, you know, reflective of anything, but there's definitely plenty of assholes in, in, in the aircraft centric Facebook groups. Uh, I mean, you, you know, there's, it's, it's, there's, and there's different forms of it. I mean, there's the gatekeeping you know, you have to model this way, and, you know, no crew chief, whatever. Uh, you know, there's always like almost weekly these guys who are complaining about all these overweathered models that they see. And, and to be fair, I see that one in, in armor modeling groups as well. Um, but but yeah, you know, and, and, and then there's the nationalism part. Like you see this with like the Airfix group and the Edward group, you know, where as soon as you say something that somebody perceives as negative, about the model kid company from their country, you're wrong. Uh, you know, so there's there's a lot of different forms of it, and I don't know, maybe some of it exists in tank groups too. The gatekeeping yeah, is something I think is particularly pronounced in, in aircraft modeling. There's a lot more the idea there that modeling is all about making an exact scale representation of the real, that it has to be. But when mm -hmm. they say that, it's a very narrowly defined definition of what realistic is as well that it's the same mm -hmm. color as the aircraft and no one puts panel lines on washes on an aircraft so don't put them on your model uh, you know and stuff like this <laughs> right and um you'd never see it those. has to be the right color it has to be right i mean you do get rivet counters in armor oh no hang on i'm going to row that back because i am a rivet counter and i like rivet <laughs> yeah easy there come on we're we're not supposed to be using rivet counter as a pejorative you do get days. criticism in armor modeling based on accuracy but it's physical well physical construction accuracy not painting accuracy in aircraft but what about more... panzer gray yeah i mean even i know panzer gray is like the source of many you know fisticuffs oh, that's on, an on eternal Facebook. mystery never to be solved like you know like proper olive <laughs> drab and all that crap despite the fact it has been solved Although, then again, it hasn't been solved because what about interpretation? What about scale distance and all that bullshit? You know, what about oh, all these boy. things? It's uh, what about getting it in? What about getting it into the ballpark? Yeah, the ballpark. That's, good all, that's all I'm looking for. Is like for I don't sure. want like if, you, if your pants are gray, looks like a pair of faded denim jeans. Yeah, I can't take you seriously. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that's harsh. Not, I mean, that's just not what it looks like. 
you know that, but i'm the same i'm the same way with interior green because i'm like look people think interior green is a group of colors and it's really not it is a pretty much a very specific color that was you know as far as anybody knows invented by north american aviation and it became a and a 611 and it is a color there's shades there's variety because yeah manufacturing vari- variation and you know, light and dirt and fade and all those things. But yeah, you know, so I, I can sort of relate to the Panzer. But even angst. with that, there's a ballpark as well with the interior green because right. it has to have that right, um, uh, what's the word? It has to have that right mix of a little touch of red in it, a little touch of, yeah, there's so much blue. It's got to be the right kind of green, but then you can vary yeah. it tonally within that. I feel like you get in the right neighborhood, then build the house however you yeah. want. Yeah, that's what you're saying, right, Tracy? It's ballpark. Yeah, ballpark. I mean, the there's room for interpretation, but then there's also accepted norms, if that makes any sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't, you can't use uh, room for interpretation to paint your Panzer Grey tank uh, light blue. That, that's <laughs> not... Well, that's not, uh, you're not in the ballpark. Actually, there. that leads on very well to our interview later. <laughs> <laughs> Change the rainbow. Yeah, listeners will have to have to listen for that. But they, yeah, that's obviously a different thing. But um, I do remember a, quite a famous modeler a little while ago, a few years ago now, painted a Sherman, and it was kind of lime green. It, it was really bright, and um, he said oh, it would tone down in weathering, and it didn't. And that was that was out of the ballpark, you know, that was quite a way out. Well, that's like, uh, you know, not too long ago, John Bonani, who's a great guy and a good modeler and, and one of the, one of the triple P guys, he, he uh, was working, I think it was a T-34, right? And, and he was doing the whole uh, color modulation thing and he posted it in the ammo group. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe the armor guys aren't as nice as I thought, you know, cause it was yeah. There was a whole lot of of that's not realistic, you know. Kind of kind of hate that guy. He got you know spewed at him and uh, yeah. And I'm just it's like come on, really. You do get it, just not as much. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. You know, my 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 favorite one though is the is the no crew chief whatever. I, I mean, you know, we've we've heard all the variations, and I don't know. Maybe it's just that there's not an equivalent to that in the armor world, right? Like. You know, uh, there ground. Is. Yeah, there is. is there, I mean, I mean, is there a guy in a tank tank thing? What do you call it? What do you call a flock of tanks? Well, it depends on which army and within that which regiment. Because <laughs> I mean, in Britain, they're known as uh, troops and as um, oh, I can't remember the other thing. I think it's squads. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But you know, they, it depends which. <laughs> I think in America, what's it in America, Tracy? I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I have no idea. But is there a guy who's the equivalent of the crew chief is what I'm there saying? There would be and, the squadron you know, sergeant major, the SSQM, yeah. who's responsible for – the officers tell everyone what to do, but then the sergeant major goes around and shouts at everyone. So he'd be the crew chief. But I think with air with aircraft, and, and, and I'm sure somebody is going to correct me if I'm wrong because – I, you know, I'm not, I was an air wing, so I don't know, but it seems like that every aircraft or maybe a couple of aircraft has a crew and there is a crew chief for oh, that I aircraft. See. No, you don't get that on tanks. I think that may, I think it may be, maybe a little bit different, you know, and so you get these guys who are like, oh, I've been in the, you know, I was on aircraft carriers and this, that, and the other, and I've never seen aircraft as dirty as these model makers and they would never fly like that. 
And the evidence is just a hundred percent against them. It's a click away. It's a click away. It's like, seriously, have you literally never looked at a reference photo? Well, I mean, you do get that with modeling, uh, with armor modeling, but it's modern armor. Yeah, yeah. Like modern yeah. armor would never be like that because it's not right. in a conflict. And then, you know, Tankograd publishes a book a month on, you know, just photos of field operations in, in Germany. And these things are filthy. Like sometimes yeah. you can't even see anything but dirt all over them. You're like, I have no patience for that. Like that's that's the part of the internet that I just let go of. What they tend to forget yeah. is... Um... I know certainly British armor in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and I'm sure American armor too. Each regiment doesn't take its own tanks over. They go over and they take over the tanks of the guys coming out. So those mm-hmm. tanks have been in right. the sandbox for whatever, you know, you want to call it for 15 years. <laughs> they're looking a little, obviously they have their regular maintenance, they have repainting and stuff, but they're going to look tired because they fucking are tired. They've been there a yeah. long time in harsh conditions. Well, and you know, being a farm kid, I... Look, I mean, I, I I know firsthand that it takes about five seconds for something to get filthy. You know, if it's if it's muddy, you know, if you're driving a vehicle around in the dirt all day with the windows down or whatever, you know, you start adding diesel and oil to the mix. Stuff just gets absolutely roached in no time. So the idea that that you know, because you hear this thing. Well, that was you know, those thing. Whether it was tank or plane, only were in. So they only lasted for four weeks on average. They wouldn't have had time. Whatever. Seriously, I kind of feel like we're wandering here though into the is weathering realistic, which for me is the wrong oh, fight. Oh yeah, it's the yeah, wrong. That fight. is true. The right, the real fight is is modeling only about. I mean, this is the big gatekeeping thing that really winds me up. That people, certain people, will say modeling is about making something that looks realistic by their definition. Well, if that's what your modeling's about, great. But that doesn't have to be what everyone else's is about. It can just be about making a model that looks interesting, or you know, making it the way they want to make it. It's a, it's not a team sport. It's one guy at a bench. Right. Well, you you said the key thing: their version of realistic. Because again, I mean, if you've never operated heavy equipment, or you've never been on tanks, or you've never been you know, on a, on a flight line, or even if you have, and you're, and you only see things in a certain way, right? I mean, look, we know some people are just cleaner than others. So you look at things a certain way. So again, everybody's version of reality is different and your work is going to reflect that. Yeah. I think the the point is you don't, if your version of reality is not what the accepted norm for modeling reality is then you don't really get to stand up on a soapbox and yell about it well you mm-hmm. don't anyway because like why should anyone no anyone you, don't get to, you don't get to tell everybody else you don't get to tell everybody else how they should pursue their particular creative activity no you don't yeah no no, nobody issued that that you know mandate but you do but you do you see it all the time and as i've said before it's just dick swinging I mean, you know, it's just dudes being dudes to a certain in a, in a, to a certain extent. But you know, unlike Tracy, I I usually choose not to scroll. <laughs> well, it's the internet as well. There's always a compulsion for people on the internet to be right and to be seen to be right, regardless mm-hmm. of whether it actually matters. I mean, yeah. I've got other shit to do. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I had other shit to do, and then I wasted a day on the internet trying to be right. 
<laughs> you know, I, for me, it's not even so much about being right as it is just this sort of weird compulsion to see the world be, I don't know, it's almost like an OCD thing or, or like, like, okay, it's unbalanced, right? If somebody claims that all of the RAF, you know, fighter wings kept their Spitfire spotless, I sense an imbalance in the force. <laughs> I have had people tell me Spitfires never got muddy, and there are some fantastic photos it's of muddy ridiculous. Spitfires. Don't it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So I feel like it's my responsibility as a citizen of the universe to, you know, correct a little bit by posting my pictures of filthy Spitfires. It, you know, it's a weird thing, but it is what Mortal it is. Filth. <laughs> <laughs> Scale grime. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting going from this conversation into our interview with Matt, where he talks about painting and weathering pink tanks and yellow tanks. And just it's it's a real ballsy approach. Um, I would never do it because I don't have time, but I am certainly interested in, in what he's trying to do there. Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. It is. And I think a lot of people are not maybe familiar with this. And, you know, here in a few minutes, when we get into that, he's going to explain his uh, his color exploration project. And to be fair, before we did the interview, I had no idea what it was what he was talking about either. And I think it, it, it definitely uh, leads to some creative thinking and some problem solving that your modeling brain would not normally have to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a that's a great exercise, I think. Dukes is I, I I mean one of the things that I respect most about him as a as a model maker and just as a human being is is his inclination to explore ideas, and that's what this tank the rainbow thing is. And he's going to talk about all of that in this next segment of our interview with him. We ready? Let's do it. Model makers, if you're like me, you're constantly looking for supplies and kits, right? My go-to source for all the essentials is the title sponsor of the Sprue Cutters Union podcast, Hobby World USA. Hobby World USA carries kits, tools, books, and paint brands from Abtilong 502 to Zero. <laughs> See what I did there with the whole A to Z thing? Hobby World is also one of only two suppliers in the United States to carry my personal favorite paint, MRP. And if you're looking for something that's not in their inventory, there's a good chance the owner, Matt Bowl, can find it for you. Matt is one of us. He's a model maker and he participates in the community on a regular basis and is always willing to answer questions. I should also note that while he's a great source for those of us in the United States and Canada, he will also ship worldwide. So, Get on over to HobbyWorldUSA.com. That's HobbyWorld-USA.com. And check them out for all your model-making needs. Matt, how are you? I'm pretty good uh, dealing with you know, all the responsibilities of work and kids and life and all that and trying to find a uh, time in between there. To Being an adult, adulting is hard. Yes. 
So yeah, the last thing we kind of were, were moving towards uh, after, let's see, what, what did we cover last time? We covered the fetishizing the enemy drama. We talked about the, uh, the Kitty Hawk drama. And, and we were moving towards talking about your newest thing. You, you've got this Tank the Rainbow deal going on. And uh, I admit, I don't even understand it. <laughs> so we, you know, we are we are all open ears for you to explain what is going on there. Yeah, totally. So essentially, late last year, I built a T thirty four eighty five as part of the uh, plastic posse's group build that they did. And while I think it came out pretty well, it also dove right into all of the bad habits that I tend to have with armor. Like I move too quickly from painting into throwing like environmental weathering on things. I don't spend enough time in those middle areas, really, you know, bumping up highlights and things like that. And the results all, you know, it's like, I, I think my armor is decent to maybe sometimes approaching good, but it's always stuck in that same trap where I do these things and then I, something happens and I lose the vision and everything kind of spins out of control. And so I had been thinking late last year, I need to find some way to push myself out of this comfort zone, um, you know, kind of break what I'm doing and find a better way to do things. And so I started looking at, as a copywriter, we'll occasionally throw ourselves like creative challenges. Like you can, you know, you can't use this word in this, you know, in this web page copy, for example. Or you have to you have to fit in this word, or you have to limit it to only this many characters, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I know that when I was learning photography way, way, way back when, it was a similar thing where it's like, okay, your challenge this time is to shoot this subject, or is to shoot in this type of condition, or and, only use a certain aperture or a yeah. certain shutter speed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it forces you to approach a thing differently and to learn what you're doing in a bit more depth and a bit more appreciation. And so I wanted to do that with armor, but I wanted to do it in a way that also basically pulled me really far away from anything I was doing. And so I think it was JC Osborne who made some crack about T-34s, you know, all being green. And that got me thinking, what if they weren't green? Um, And that led to the whole idea of tank the rainbow, which is basically, uh, building seven tanks, not really caring at all about accuracy, only caring a little bit about like construction quality because it's they're more like I call them like advanced mules. Like they are things I want to finish as completed builds, but the focus is really on the painting and the finishing as opposed to the building side of it. So if there's like a seam here or there, I'm not really too bent out of shape because after all, they're going to be like bright orange. Um, so, right. So you're going to have one for every color of the rainbow. Is that yeah. right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Um, and they're at, currently they're all built. I'm waiting on tracks for one of them. Um, and to kind of add a little extra thing on top of just the colors, I've also added a constraint to each one to sort of force me into a box. And again, set up that sort of creative challenge. So like the red one has to be, even though I've, I've now since dropped this one on this one because I've learned my lesson, the original constraint for it was to only use an airbrush. And there were a few exceptions for things like road wheels or pioneer tools where the only lesson I think I would gain would be how to use up a whole bunch of my masking tape. Uh, <laughs> I, no one, it doesn't seem necessary, but the idea was 
you know, all the, you know, basically no pin washing, no oils applied with a brush and kind of worked in like all the typical stuff I would normally do. Uh, and instead use an airbrush for all that. And I quickly found that was very, very limiting in a pretty negative way. I can relate to this because on my last figure exercises, I've been trying to, I tried to use the airbrush as much as possible, like maybe even for everything except the eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And you get to a point where it's just not practical, but you were even trying to do the panel lines on that thing with, with an airbrush. How'd that work out? It actually worked out better than I thought. Uh, I ended up using, uh, using uncle night shifts sort of basically post shading or like mid shading uh, method to darken up the areas where the panel lines and bolt heads and whatnot would be, and then come back over with paint and sort of blend it in. It worked all right. I, I ended up coming back on top of that though, and using essentially a, uh, a version of magic wash kind of adapting the ammo shaders to that, to pick up all that surface detail. Um, once I accepted that I was not going to stick to the airbrush only thing for the red tank. And that worked a lot better in terms of just, there are a lot of little rivets and bolts and hard edges and whatnot on the R35 that, are really tough to cover appropriately just with an airbrush. And so, I mean, the whole tank's very small anyway, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's all, yeah. It's also tough to work around with an airbrush. I mean, there, there are some, there's some areas where it's like, I don't know. I can't even get an airbrush to it to, to get what I need to get done, done. And then there's stuff like the tracks. Like, I mean, I, weathering tracks with an airbrush is, I mean, it, it's just, it's the wrong tool for the job is what it comes down to. And it's tough to get the stuff that, that needs to get done, done. So, uh, yeah, I did pull away from the airbrush only requirement on that basically after it taught me what I wanted to learn from it, which was that, you know, airbrushes have their limits. Sorry to go back a little bit. You said, talked about, um, using only airbrush that for me, the interesting part of that exercise, the utility of the exercise is to find out if you could find new ways of using the airbrush to find if it changed how you mm -hmm. use the airbrush. Did you find that it, it taught you anything new about the airbrush or other than so its limits? Obviously? I'm planning to go back when weathering starts and use the airbrush for a few different things that I maybe wouldn't have in the past. Um, you know, for example, trying to do things like using the airbrush with pigments or using the airbrush with those, uh, those AK pencils, or um, I haven't actually tried it on, armor yet i don't think but the the whole thing that uh john bonani kind of broke out with uh, using hairspray chipping and enamel weathering products together to create some interesting effects and so i want to pull those into action because i've only used that technique on like i think on like aircraft gear bays so nothing too fancy i actually use that um if, if i understand what you're talking about there um on my the Ming leopard that I finished not too long ago where lay down some strong uh, kind of panel washes uh, on the underside, picking out those uh, details with a pretty strong earth tone and then dusting over, well, then hairspraying it and then dusting over it with like a, a buff color and then using the, the hairspray to sort of give you some texture and, um, and patina to mm -hmm. the initial dust layer. And it worked out great. It was, it's really, it gives you a really natural result that I don't think you could easily do in any other way. Yeah. 
yeah, that, that's exact. That's exactly it. And I, I did, I've done it on the uh, on the P thirty eight with the gear base, and I was really happy with how it came out. And so now I want to play with it on everything. Uh, it's just a matter of getting getting my other stuff to the point where I can roll it out. Uh, in terms of what I've learned so far and various lessons I can carry forward into other things with armor and bad habits, uh, I think the biggest one. And I maybe didn't learn it enough on the R35, but as I've kind of like, because I now have the R35, which is the red one, pretty much almost to the point of weathering. Uh, the orange one is a Tacom PL01, that weird stealthy prototype tank. Um, it's orange and it's very orange. Uh, <laughs> the yellow one is an AFV Club FV4005, which is currently very yellow, but it has additional plans. Um, the thing I've learned kind of through all of them is when it comes to contrast, don't let off the gas. Don't, don't back it off and think, okay, this is too much. It's too vibrant or too crazy because as additional things come into play, that will sort of tone down. And in the past I've gone back on that and backtracked and it's like, okay, let me tone this down a little bit, or this is too, you know, this part's too light. This part's too dark. I need to, blend them together more. And that means that by the time I get through everything, it all just looks like one color and it doesn't stand out in a real way, shape, or form. Um, I think the other big one has been, at least so far with the orange uh, PL01, I discovered that this is something that I knew anyway from you know weathering like blue-nosed Mustangs in the past, where if you put a brown wash over blue, it turns red. And I found the opposite was true with this vibrant orange. If I put down a somewhat less vibrant color, so like a you know like I was using a NATO brown on top of it, and the NATO brown turned like gray. It, it completely cooled out. It lost any sense of brown, and it was really interesting to see. And I think it's just the extremity of how bright that orange is and the impact that it's having. But uh, it, it's a really good lesson for how different colors interact. And I think, because I've always bitched and moaned about like all these AK and ammo watches, they always seem to have some sort of like green tint to them. And now I'm wondering if that's intentional because that counteracts some of the colors that they're going down on top of. And so it doesn't, doesn't maybe suffer a color shift or it sort of plays into that color shift in a different way. I just don't know. Um, one of the questions I had, because I'm not really up to speed on what you're doing, what are your, your plans for weathering? Are you painting these tanks, these vibrant colors, and then are you going to weather them as if they're going through our own natural environment? I was going to ask that too, yeah. Or are you going to tailor the weathering of the orange tank with weathering that complements the orange color in the same way that, um, you know, the way we weather camouflage tanks works? So I'm – not really sure yet which way they're going to go. Um, I, I had plans to like, I originally I had plans to do like a color or a constraint and like some sort of weathering challenge on top of it. But that was just, you know, at that point we're talking like 21 different things to keep track of. And it's just, it's a lot. And I figured that'd be a great way for me just to never get any of this done would be to just plan it out to infinity. And so right now I'm kind of calling it by ear and, thinking about what would what would look the coolest on each tank, essentially. Um, so for one of them, I may do like snow and ice and some mucky ice slop on the tracks. Uh, for another one, I want to do, you know, dust. And one of them I want to try to, because I, I never really do this, but I want to do one that's relatively clean. 
uh, you know, and see what that's like. And so I guess the answer is yes. <laughs> um, I, I will be weathering them. Uh, it will be natural environments. It's not, so I'm not going to put like, you know, like on the red tank, it's not going to be going through like blood red mud or anything like that. It's going to be, you know, it'll probably be through like some sort of more of a uh, lighter tan type of situation just to create some interesting contrast with it. So they, they will be, you know, natural environments found on the planet Earth somewhere. Um, what that actually means in terms of the variety for each one, I'm still not not quite sure yet. Well, I think the whole thing is pretty fascinating. And and now I do understand it better. And and I, I, I look, I think this is something that I, I, I hope a lot of people pick up on on a couple of levels. Like the, the, the most obvious thing is what you do, are doing with the airbrush. Because I think all of us have stuff to learn there. You know, when you look at the work of actual airbrush illustrators, you know, like these guys who paint pictures mm-hmm. with them, you realize that we are really just on the tip of the iceberg as model makers when it comes to using that particular tool. And I think we're leaving a lot of potential on the table. And I know that as I have attempted to do things with, with the airbrush on my bust painting exercises, and failed that I have then been able to, I found myself doing stuff like on my P40 I'm working on right now. I'll start working on panel lines and rivets with the airbrush and then realize, wait a minute, what am I even thinking here? And and I'm getting away with it. And it's because I've picked up something from the other exercise. So I think it's really good on that level. The other thing that I hope people are picking up on is, is your exploration of color feeds into something that I've believed for a long time, which is there's an intersection of, of realism and aesthetics. And, I, and, and you're getting into a level of things like color theory and, and color composition and color interaction that painters and photographers have been working f- forever. But that as model makers, we really are not, you know, again, we're, we just are, we have only sort of tapped into that. And so I think it's super cool. And I hope that people, you know, pick up on that and run with it themselves, kind of take that as, you know, inspiration for their own experiments. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, what you mentioned about the laying in that wash against that vibrant orange and how the wash just kind of neutralized itself because of what it was up against. I mean, that's that's color theory. And color theory is is something you can learn and learn in depth in art school. You can learn by application if you're a, a you know in fine arts or, or graphic design or things like that. And I think model makers, it's hit or miss. Some some people have an intuitive eye for what goes together, and and you know I think more than anything, we don't pat ourselves on the back for making the right color choices so much as we it leaps off the page whenever we make the wrong ones. But you do see a lot of people on the internet who have made the wrong choices and, and just keep going. And it's just because they don't understand, you know, warm and cool of the same color. Mm-hmm. You know, like green is a great example because, you know, olive drab is, is so prevalent. You can really kind of fuck up a model if, you, if you've got a warm tone and then you throw a, a cool green wash or, or, or filter. It just... You mean like like when you when you put little dots of every color of oil you own all over your model and call it <laughs> dot filtering? You mean like that? 
I mean like that, but I also mean specifically where people are are choosing to accent things with uh, something that's totally out way out of whack. Yeah, it's like like putting like a forest green wash on a on an olive drab subject and just yeah, a hundred percent. And then and then you see them say this doesn't really look right to me and I don't really know why, you know, and, and I think being able to drill down to like what Tracy's talking about is the answer or at least, you know, helps you figure out the answer. The number one problem I see when I'm judging and I see it on my own model. So it's not, you know, I've licked it is what I call sort of chromatic muddiness, which is you see lots of models where there's, if you think of the color on a model in terms of the, the graph you get on a photo, you know, where you've got light, shade, histogram, that's it. Um, Everyone's too much in the middle. It's almost like 100% in the middle. It's all mid-tones. There's no light. There's no dark. And a lot of it's because they use desaturated colors. They don't know the difference between a saturated color and a desaturated color. And you get this sort of uh, deadness on the model, and it looks gray. There's no nothing, none of the details leap out, no matter how many pin washes you've got on it. Be, not because there's no contrast, but because there's no thought about color on the model. They've just gone for, you know, maybe they've, they've learned the batch of techniques, but also they've probably bought all the paints that are recommended by color reference to do the model. And then they've just done it. And great, they've used the paints correctly and everything else, but it doesn't come alive because if you think of that histogram, it's all in the middle. There's nothing at each end. There's also a formula that, that gets followed with, and I'll just, I'll use armor modeling because that's really what I do, but there's a formula that, that people use without thinking about what they're doing. Um, again, like my, my latest was the, the leopard in, in NATO camo. And you have to think about what kind of a, a wash or, or pen wash you're putting on a NATO black to make it the pen wash work. You know, you can't put black on black. It's not really, it's, it's a waste of time really, but you know, you can, you can tailor what colors you're using on top of other colors to bring out those details. You know, dust colors collect really well on black. Um, You don't have to go to the extreme where it's like super bright, but even a dust color in a mid tone is really going to emphasize some great stuff on black, red, you know, red, brown, and green, but you can also change what color you're using in a single panel line as it travels through those colors because... 100%. You know, yep. Absolutely. That's, that's the way real things work. That goes back to what Matt was saying, that I find the same problem. I think you were talking about, Matt, where you get to a certain point on armor, and it's almost like autopilot to the finish. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, you weren't, you were doing the same thing every time, the formula yeah. you learn. And that's a problem I have too. And it's really interesting that, you know, you're looking at ways to try and bust out. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is I build a lot more, well, I've built a lot of armor. Um, Getting it to paint and completion is a whole different story. Um, I'm more active on aircraft. So I'm, I tend to be more, uh, more active in terms of pushing my, my techniques and the way I'm approaching things in aircraft. Whereas armor, it's like, I may do one a year. And so when I come around to it, it, it's very easy to fall back in those, you know, the things that I, I know and have done in the past. And this is very much an effort to break that and to kind of break it by just doing and completing more things and doing them in in ways where I'm not tempted to, you know, again, fall back into the stuff that I always do. 
How many other people are uh, are doing the tank the rainbow? Just me. It's just my thing. Um, it's funny that that about half the people get it instantly. Maybe another quarter kind of come around to it once they see a little bit of what's happening, and then there's another quarter that just does not get it at all. Well, there's a large contingent out there of people that just want you know to read the instructions, see which XF numbers they need, go buy and paint the model. Yeah, that's sure. it. A lot of people don't like to think about color at all. Yeah. But they're missing out. Yeah, they're, I mean, they don't get to paint a tank uh, Daglo orange. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually, it's, it's ending up being a lot more fun than I thought it would be. So I can't wait to see them all. Next I can't time. wait to see like what what you're figuring out as you go along and like how the first couple of attempts versus what you're finishing towards the end, how that changes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I feel like uh, I feel like the red one is probably the most clumsy of the bunch so far um and they're getting more competent as they go but i'm also like i'm recording everything as i do it so i i actually had to go out and buy a separate external hard drive just to hold all the shit because my regular one for video work filled up so i'm not even worrying about like editing them right now i'm just grabbing footage and i'll probably try to try to cut them down to like you know one or two episodes per tank so it's not i'm not gonna make anybody watch like 20 episodes on painting a tank red it's gonna you know gonna make it a bit more I feel like with the red one, though, you, you pick the most difficult color on the smallest <laughs> tank. The orange was daunting to me. The orange was daunting. I don't think I started out the best, but I think once I found the orange I was going to do, it, it ended up really really in a good spot. But uh, that thing, that color is unforgiving in terms of covering over other things. And it's like, yeah, if, if you spray me wrong, I will turn a different color and we will have, we will have words about it. So, yeah, it's, it's been a lot. But now I'm, you know, now that the yellow is, the yellow on the yellow is down. So now that I'm moving into the camo on that and then moving into like, you know, greens and blues, it should get Are you trying to figure this out on your own or are you actually, like my, my head instantly goes to a a piece of orange construction equipment that was outside the bar whenever we were building it. And it just, everywhere I looked was cool weathering patina. So I was making photos. Are you looking at photos of things that are? Yeah. So with with orange, I actually got um, I got a bit twisted around trying to find good references, and then I happened to look and realize that we had a uh, we had a hammer that we had left out in the backyard, and it has like an orange shaft on it. And the Texas sun, being the Texas sun, it had had its way with one side of the hammer, and so one side was like this like pale white yellow color, and the other side was orange. And there's like this really nice gradation between the two on the the front and back sides of the shaft. And so I was able to basically steal that and like take it to the garage with me and kind of use that as my gauge for how I wanted to handle the fading. And I'm still not exactly where I want to be, but I mean, it's, I'd say it's 90% there in terms of what I was hoping to, hoping to achieve. So. Right. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, are you trying to figure this out? Um, the, the, your weathering procedure, are you trying to figure it out on your own and let it kind of grow organically or are you, um, are you finding reference photos and, and using those? So basically, what I, the main thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to avoid falling into a step-by-step um, and sort of maybe reinvent my own step-by-step or my like grab bag of like, I want to do this and this and this. Um, and so part of that is just kind of trying shit. Part of it is looking at references. Um, a lot of times I'll look at references of like the actual real tank and then think, okay, how do I, how would I, take this and shift it over to, um, you know, to like red or yellow or orange or whatnot. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, uh, the method there. And then I'm also, 
I'm looking at things, you know, that like, you know, Uncle Night Shift and whatnot are doing um, in terms of, you know, oh, that's an interesting way to approach that problem. Maybe I can adapt that and do this with it. So it's it's kind of coming from all over the place, which is intentional. I mean, I, I want to not have like the journey entirely mapped out and have to sort of discover some of it for myself. Yeah. And I just wondered if you were like had reference photos of how these, you know, like we talked about with the, the orange a little bit, but I would think finding some construction equipment and, you know, making some photos would be one way to inform that journey. Mm-hmm. The other way is to just fucking get in there and be like, okay, what, what is my brain telling me to do? Yeah. And like, what do I, what do I know? Yeah. And like, I mean, with yellow, like, you know, we've had a, a highway near us under construction for the last two years. So I get to see all kinds of dinged up yellow construction equipment all the time. But when they first started doing like the major excavation to run the highway through, they brought out some, uh, Will will probably know what these are, the uh, John Deere D11 tractors, which are like, if you basically took like an IO class battleship and made it into a tractor, that's basically what, or sorry, bulldozer. Uh, <laughs> shit. Caterpillar. Yeah. Caterpillar D11. Cat, not John Deere. There are people who yeah. will want to fight you. Yeah, fight you. Yeah, John Deere is losing John Deere. Yeah. Caterpillar D11. My bad. Um, but oh my God, that, I mean, that thing was, it was literally like, you know, in the spirit of the old British land ship, like, I mean, they're huge. And, and the, the ones that they were using, like they were well-maintained and all that, but the blades were torn to shit. And like, you know, they were, half of them were basically just bright metal at that point. Um, you know, by the end, when they were carting them away, they, they looked like they had been through a war. So I I think this is hugely important because I, I feel like that, that so many of these guys, and, and I have to remind myself of this sometimes because, you know, I mean, I live on a farm. I can go look at a, at a at an oil stain anytime I want to. I can go look at the way that dirt collects in grease anytime I want to. But I think that the vast majority of model makers have probably never even been on a muddy road. Yeah, but what bothers me is, is they don't go looking for it. And, the, and, and, and they have this tendency to substitute their imagination for fact. And, and and I wanted to get into this, but we just didn't have time. I think this is endemic with the aircraft community where it's like the whole, it's like the whole powder burns on, yep. on wing guns thing, right? Like that's been a trope for 50 years and it almost never happens in real life. Well, it's the same with tank barrels. You don't get right. soot on the end of tank barrels. They fire smokeless charges. Well, I mean, I had an art teacher who would, while we're doing, uh, you know, live drawing, you look at the model for... 10 seconds and you go to your paper for 10 seconds and back to the model and back to the paper. And if he caught you looking at the model for five seconds and drawing on the paper for 30, he'd be like, well, what are you, what are you doing? You're just making shit up. Like you're, you're no longer looking at what is in front of you to inform your drawing. You've assumed that you know what it looks like. And now you're just creating it out of your head. And that's not reality. And like what you're trying to do is mimic or, or replicate reality. And it's just, it's just the same thing about looking versus seeing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think you need to live in a place that has a muddy road so much as you need to just open your eyes to what's around you all the time. Well, these crew chief guys, they may be thinking of something they saw 30 years ago. And, you know, no one's memory is that good. Go and look at it now. You- and, you know, and working in, say, the mid-80s on an Air Force base in peacetime is a lot different than working on a Ford base in Belgium in 1944 with, you know, PSP all over the ground. And, you know, you're like burning gasoline in a tent trying to stay warm because it's freezing out. You know, it's like 
different conditions, different times. Um, you know, but then you've got you, you've always got that one dude who's like, "Well, I talked to my cousin's dad, and he was a tanker in World War II, and he said they cleaned them <laughs> every day." <laughs> really? They did what was necessary to keep really? them running. Is that what he said? Really? I know someone that asked a British tank crew, "What what color was your tank?" He's like, "I don't know, green." Most of them just don't. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, we weren't holding up the swatches at the time. Got more important shit to think about. Yeah. If it looks wrong, everybody's going to call you out on how it looks wrong. Or actually, they're not. They're just going to be like, "Hey, that's great." Out of boy. That's out of boy. The rest of us look at it and we're like, "What the fuck are you doing? Like, that's <laughs> that looks. Everything about this is wrong." I don't say it. I keep scrolling. I got other things to do with my life. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Wait, which which group am I in? Can I can I say what I want to say? Or I mean, is it going to fall on play? deaf ears or not? You know, oh. honestly, if you ask me my opinion. I have no shortage of opinion. Otherwise, eh, I can't be bothered to start yeah. an argument. I mean, I yeah, and it depends sometimes on the day too. Picking and some really are. Sometimes I'm up for it. Sometimes I'm not. The, uh, yeah. I, I will say, I think when it comes to like getting colors right versus wrong, I think there's a, for every color, there's like a, there's like a ballpark where, you know, you, there's a range where you're good. And then there's, I would say there's, there's a range where you can make your case and still be good. So like when I did the, I did the P47M last year and it was the 63rd, whatever, whichever squadron it is, it has like the dark blue, light blue camo. And people who have just been having pissing matches over what colors those blues are pretty much ever since 1945. And nobody fucking knows. And people say it's Azure. And it's like, why would it be Azure? They use that in fucking Africa. Like they didn't use it in England. Um, you know, they wouldn't use it on like a base that was entirely staffed and operated by the U S army air force. Like, I, I don't know. So I kind of went around and made up my own story. Like they used PRU blue because they had that for their mosquitoes that they were flying and, yeah, that was the closest blue they had, and it looks like the blue in the colors if you like lighten it with white or darken it with black. And so, yeah, yeah, the azure never made sense to me. Um, and but I mean, that's one where it's like I can make my case for this and be happy with it. And if people disagree, then tough shit. Um, or if you if you don't want to be in the right neighborhood at all, do whatever the hell you want and just say I'm doing whatever the hell I want, and then people can go suck it. Yeah. Well, this. Leads go. into my pet peeve of, of realism and the purpose of modeling is realism. Models painted realistically, just well, I say realistically, painted as the tank was, just with the color, don't look yep. right as models. It has to look right as a model, not in terms of what you think a model should look like, but in terms of an object on a table yeah, that yeah. size, it has to look right. And usually, paint, you know, it doesn't paint it exactly realistically, it doesn't look right. I just think it's even more fundamental than that. They're they're fucking boring. Yeah, <laughs> and they were like that for five minutes. Yeah, but also you're you're trying to create scale reality, right? You're not trying to recreate reality. You're trying to recreate what you see on a much reduced level. Um, it's an interpretation of reality. Yeah. The word I always throw out and get, exactly. I get laughed at for it is uh, verisimilitude, which is like the semblance of being real. And, yeah, but nobody can smell that well. They're just laughing at you to cover up the fact they don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm doing right now. The guys that complain about the color are the same ones that won't add brake lines because it's rivet counting. Or, yep. You know, they're, they're just the same. 
they, they've got their one thing they're anal about and they cry realism about it, but they don't do all the other <laughs> things to make their plane tank realistic. Well, and, and again, this is like a whole episode. It's just dick waving. It's just, it's just a way for dudes to make their penises feel longer. They've got that one thing they feel like they can be authoritative about and feel important. And so, you know, that's where, that's where all of that shit comes from, in my opinion. It's what people trying to be seen. Like they're, they're anonymous in every other way. They, don't, they probably don't put work out there. And they're just like, well, that's wrong. Like who, who said that? Who invited this guy to this party? Right. And the internet is their opportunity to be heard. So here, here's a question that I'm thinking over and over while we're having this conversation. And this, I think this is a good topic for us, for the four of us right now. So how can we have this conversation about the nuances and techniques of things like color and say that model making cannot be art? Matt? <laughs> Go for it. What are your thoughts? Um, <laughs> and yeah. I, just for you guys who are not, who are just listening <laughs> and not watching, I've got, yeah. I've got these guys. They're all on camera, and Chris and Tracy are having a collective aneurysm right now. So <laughs> this should be good. Yeah, so my problem isn't so much with calling modeling art. It's with the fact that art is such a broad term that it is almost meaningless. Um, you know, it's every, I mean, it's everything from stuff hanging in the Louvre to kids gluing macaroni onto popsicle sticks. And, and so just from the, I guess I, I come to the, I come to the conclusion that if everything is art, nothing's art. And <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, well, sure. You know, fuck it. Let's call it art. But that doesn't really mean anything anymore. And then I also have the other side of me, which is kind of like if you have to if you have to call yourself something you're really not that um, and so you know it's like i'm an artist no you're not um you know i'm a genius no you're not like it's 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 very I'm, much i'm a modeler not an assembler <laughs> hey, I, I will claim the assembler badge all day long uh if, if i'm gonna get out there and actually do modeling um in in whatever term that these people think it means i want to do it of my own choice not because i'm forced to but uh but yeah, it's so I, I guess I can definitely see where some aspects or some modeling executions are and would count as art. Um, I just I don't know. The, the term is so squishy to me that it's kind of a meaningless, meaningless discussion. <laughs> Tracy is over there shaking his head, so I can't wait to hear this. Well, I got I got some hard opinions here, man. Let's um, do it. That's what this show is about. Hard opinions. As somebody who made a living as an artist uh, at, you know, and studied art in school and made a living as an artist. I think you can call what you do art. If you make money from it, if you're a profession and that's what you do for a living and you are recognized as an artist with a, uh, a market actual commodity, then you can call yourself an artist. The rest of us are studying art. We're practicing art. You know, uh, kids gluing macaroni on paper plates is an activity. Um, adults going to painting classes and drawing classes is either an activity or they're studying art. They're they're getting their goal is to get better. People who go to art school, their goal is to get better so that they can make a living off of whatever art field they've chosen. So if you're making a living off of it and you want to call it art, I'm not going to argue with you. 
the rest of us are using artistic techniques in our hobby. Mm-hmm. That's, and, that's fair. That's fair. And I, I know how to mix colors because I went to art school. And what Chris touched on, these, um, these sort of mid-muddy tones, that's the hardest thing in the world to understand. Because if you're working with oil paints on a canvas, 99% of the time while you're studying art, you're just making mud. And you don't understand how these colors work together, complementary colors in particular. But then by the time you, you know art school spits you out on the other end, you should have a pretty good idea of you, that red is too bright. Or in our field, let's say this, this red-brown is too vibrant. Well, then just put a drop or two of green in it. And it'll knock it back and neutralize it a little bit. But if you put equal amounts of complementary colors, you're going to get mud. We use what we're learning in our hobby. Is our hobby art? There are some people, yeah, they're artists for sure. I think I think you are. For the record, I don't care what you say. Your stuff is. I look at it and I'm like, yeah, this dude's an artist. I use artistic training and artistic techniques in my hobby. The most important thing I learned at art school for modeling is to understand materials, is to share to Rothko wrote a book called The Plastic Art, which is, is a it's not about his own work. It's about uh the plastics. And in his case, what he meant was paints and the materials and what have you, because technically they are plastic materials. They behave they're not chemically plastic, but they're you know, they can be stretched, they can be moved, they can be diluted, uh, intensified and so on. And it, artists have to learn about materials. They have to learn how to use materials, how to subvert materials, and so on. Whether or not modelling is art, modellers don't spend enough time thinking about that. They don't spend enough effort that learning much their materials. Yeah, that much is certain. Well, I, I think just in the hobby in general, I'm not. I don't want to zoom into like specific people, but you know, it's like if I go to a show here in Austin, for example, and I look at the armor table and see kind of what's entered. A lot of it, I think, just happens without too much conscious thought. Uh, you know, it's like you'll see, like, an entire category, like, post-World War II Soviet tanks or whatever, and half of them are just painted green. They may as well just be painted with, like, a rattle can. And no weathering is done. A decal is slapped onto the side, and that's it. And I think I think there's there's a distinction to be made. I don't know if it's art or not art or whatnot. But between sort of just kind of following a, a roadmap that somebody else has laid out for you, whether it's the kit instructions or you're following like, you know, a guide that like Mig has put out there in one of his books or whatnot, where it's like, do this step, then this step, then this step. And the people who are actually, I would say, maybe more in conversation with the materials that they're using and thinking in terms of layers and interaction of light and shadow and contrast and saturation and texture to create something more than just, you know, plastic that has some chemicals sl- slathered on it in some sort of liquid solution. I mean, for some people that's modeling, but it's, it's just a shame people don't, you know, they could be doing a lot more. They could be enjoying it in a very different way if they, if they take the time to get, get to grips but, with these things. But you know, that's also cool for them. I mean, that's like I've said before, there's guys that just want to have something neat on their shelf that looks like their favorite airplane or tank. And that's totally fine. They don't want to think about it in, in these terms and that's fine. Not everybody has to, but you know, for those of us that, that want to think harder about it, I think this is a, I think this is an important conversation and this is fun for me because 
this is the first time that the three of us, me, Tracy, and, and Chris, have, have have sort of had this this debate, and I'm outnumbered because <laughs> <laughs> because they are both art school graduates, and I am an engineering school graduate, and so you know my position on it is totally predictable because as Matt has often accused me of, I am pretty literal. I think of art as nothing more than a noun. It's a thing that that gets done, and it's a thing that gets done to produce an emotional result based on the use of particular methods and techniques and and knowledge. And really, the only person that knows is the person doing it. Like like we can look at something and maybe divine. Like I look at Tracy stuff, and I see these different techniques and methods at play, and I think, yeah, that's art. But truthfully, I think it's really between the the creator and and their and their work, um, and that we what what happens is we use it as a qualitative thing, uh, like because you know people say oh well that's 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 just that's just that's just not art I don't like it, but that's two different things. There's good art and there's bad art, and I, I think that's all that the viewer really is entitled to decide is whether or not they like it. You know, but having said all that, I also understand Tracy's point where, you know, if you run around declaring yourself to be an artist, people are going to give you some side eye because uh, it just, you know, it's like the dude who says, well, yeah, I'm a weightlifter. And you're like, you yeah, know, you're not. You're a guy who goes to the gym three days a week. <laughs> Actually, it's not. There's, there's quite a lot more pretension on the artist. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. But, but you get my point. It's just it's just a self-aggrandizing thing that some oh. people do because they feel the need, you know, to to lead with their ego. Uh, so I, you know, I get it. So when people, you know, when people say something about it to me, I'm like, ah, I'm just, I, I'm trying to make art. I, that's all I can really say. I'm not, I'm not making any claims, but, but I think, I think model making certainly can be. And I want to ask you guys this because, uh, I had a new thought the other day sitting on the pooper as happens. <laughs> and it's this. So, it occurs to me at one time that every form of art, they were having this conversation or this debate. Like if cavemen were capable of it, there was a point where they were like, are cave drawings, you know, is illustration an art? And then there's the group of cavemen who were like, no, they're just pictures on a wall. That's not art. We're just documenting things. Liter- literature. You know, there was a time when people were like, okay, no, we're just using the written word to document things. That's not art. And then you've got the guys who are like, yeah, but I'm telling a story. I'm creating an emotional response. That's my intent with this, you know, food, music, whatever. And so I wonder if we're at a point with model making where we're sort of crossing over into new territory as techniques have evolved and because we're seeing more advanced finishes and more advanced techniques and we're moving away from the, you know, from the Shep Payne box art days, you know, I, gonna, I don't know, maybe this is ridiculous and I should just, you know, what do you think? Well, there's a very specific point in history where artists become artists. It's around the end of the Renaissance when they, I mean, the word artist comes from artisan and it's where people stopped painting to order and started painting because they wanted to paint and then they sell it and people buy it if they like it. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a point in, in art history where artists are invented, if you see what I mean. And then in the, 
I don't know, 20. You might disagree, Tracy, but with the ready-mades, uh, Deschamps and, um, and what have you in the uh, early 20th century, you get this idea that art's art because I say it's art and I'm an artist. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of that. And that's where the, the concept of a really pretentious artist kind of starts to creep in. Um, but since then, anything can be art. And you don't have to be humble about it, you know? <laughs> In fact, really, the less humble, the better. Uh, I guess. I mean, the less humble, the more annoying to me, the less seriously I can take you. You just have to You just have to wear a, a beret. That's all you have to do. Just wear a black oh, beret. Oh, you're so 1970. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, well, at, look at Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is I – will, I will fist fight you at the playground at 3 o'clock. Calvin and Hobbes is art. Oh, fuck yes, it is. Absolutely. On multiple levels, not just the illustration level. Um, Mettings, you're in for it, buddy. <laughs> I'll shake my head just to wind him up. <laughs> I mean, it provokes an emotional response seven days a week. Every it, it's, um, it's very much deeper than its form, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely, absolutely. is. And he never, he never sold a single one of those. He never made money other than syndication rights. Um, whatever he got paid for doing them, he never sold them. Tracy, have you ever have you ever read Searching for Calvin and Hobbes? No. Get it, find it, get it. It's a wonderful book. Sorry to interrupt, but I know you're going to love it. Yeah. I mean, just I, I like to to contrast like the effect that somebody's product, let's just call it, is having on humanity, how beloved it can become, and I think part of that is because who is he? Like, if I showed you a picture of Bill Watterson, you'd be like, is that, who is that? I don't know. Um, he just, he's humble. He's extremely talented. He's obviously extremely funny. And he's become sort of this beloved American icon. Um, whereas there's a guy who sold an invisible sculpture for $18,000 last week. And, I'm, you know, I applaud him for, uh, from, you know, the Barnum and Bailey side of things. But... As an artist, I can't really give him a lot of credit. He's, he's a great con man. <laughs> That's more marketing than artistry, right? Absolutely. That's performance art. Yeah. <laughs> the sculpture's <laughs> not the art. The selling it is the art. Okay, Tracy, how about Banksy? Where does he fit in your spectrum? I love him. Yeah, uh, He's too. the same as Calvin and Hobbes. You know, he takes a form and, and adds so much more depth to it. Yeah. It's a social commentary. He's taken the piss, which I absolutely love. Um, and people love it. You know, if I went out and spray painted something on a wall, uh, not only would I probably get arrested, but the people who whose wall it was would really very much like me to pay for <laughs> taken off. Whereas, you know, Banksy paints something on a wall and the council comes along to, to eradicate it. And the owner of the wall is like, if you fucking touch this, you're going to court. You know, he's he's beloved. Um, people steal the wall. Yeah. it's happened where people it's been painted on like a you know like a hoarding round a building site or whatever someone's come along and stolen it and he's got to be laughing his ass off at that there's a great documentary about him and and one of the things that that made me laugh the hardest is he's got this one that they've taken down it was on canvas and they're in the middle of auctioning it off right it's at Sotheby's or whatever it is and they're, you know, the bids are, are advancing into the millions of dollars or whatever. 
And somewhere Banksy is watching and he pushes a switch that turns on a motorized shredder that's contained within the frame of the, of the piece. And the canvas starts rolling down through the shredder and is halfway shredded before they stop it. And the price keeps going up. <laughs> Phenomenal. To, I mean, to get back to modeling, sorry, uh, <laughs> modeling and art, I mean, I think we can all name modelers who are artists, though. People who use yeah. the form to make art. 100%. 100%. Whether they would call themselves artists or not, I think that goes a long way towards, you know, the term being um, being used is when somebody else is using it to describe your work, you know? Like, uh, Peril of Lund is an artist. Would he say he's an artist? Probably not. But if you ask... 90% of the people who know his work, yeah, they would say he is. Adam Wilder, Mike Mike Rinaldi. Yeah. Yeah, Mike Rinaldi. Yeah. So here's the thing that, that strikes me more and more is if we sat here and, and started rattling off names, yeah. I predict <laughs> that almost all of them would be armor modelers. The question is, why are so few aircraft model makers on that list? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm less familiar with aircraft modeling. Um, but Chris, you just released, uh, the scratch building book from, uh, uh, Megas. Yeah. Megas Sonos. Yeah. I think he would say he's an engineer because he, he is, is an engineer. Is. Absolutely. A bit. But I think you, I think you could also just argue that he's a precision sculptor. I don't think he would recognize the, t this is interesting though, because what you say about people applying it. I'd have to ask him, and I'll send him this uh, this interview when it goes out. But um, I suspect he wouldn't apply the term to himself. And I find the same. I tried. I told uh, Jean Bernard Andre, um, JBA Diorama. I said, "You're an artist," and he's, "No, no, no. I just make dioramas." And uh, you know, like you say, the guys that are making art don't need to be told that they're yeah. making art. Well, they're not, not even from you. They're not going to be waving the flag that says, "Hello, I'm an artist." Yeah. Um, I mean, JB Diorama, that, that's art. Like, it's not, it is. Yeah. It's not military, really. Um, it, it absolutely evokes contemplation and emotion, and it's applying skills that we might have, but that we would never think to use in that way. I mean, he's, he's just doing, he's doing his own thing. He's an artist that happens to be using models to make it, if you see yeah. what I mean. He'd be an artist anyway. But sorry, Matt, we're not talking to you. Um, are there any you know aircraft are there any aircraft models that you look at and think of as as uh as artists i mean the one that comes to mind right now is uh Fanch lubin out of france um yep i've been following the work he's been doing on his seahawk and some of the ideas and techniques that he brings into the fold like he was painting the roof of the of the main cabin of the seahawk and he painted it in a way that it looks exactly what you would expect for the roof of a thing flying over a body of water with all the weird reflections coming off the water and kind of splaying across the surface. And it looks amazing. And to me, that's the kind of creativity and vision that elevates something beyond just, you know, assembling something and painting it as like a paint by numbers exercise. You know, he, he's putting it into a situation and understanding the interplay of all the different elements going into it and doing and using those to create something that's more than the sum of its parts, I think. And, 
you know, it was, it was one of those things I was looking at. I was like, how the fuck would I ever think to do something like this? Like, you know, and even if I thought of it, I would have no idea how to go about bringing it about, how to realize it. And so he's one of those where every post that he has, I feel like I learned something. Um, whether or not it's from an engineering or a design perspective with this stuff with 3D, print, 3D printing, or if it's, you know, painting and materials usage, it's just, it's like a, it, everything he does, to me, it feels like it's a masterclass to just sit back and watch that stuff. And the vision that goes into it, because it's not, it's not just like technically amazing, it's aesthetically amazing too. And there's intent behind it, which to Will's point, I think is a, is a big part of what sets something up to potentially be art in the first place. Well, what about his black and white Corsair and Mustang yeah. project? <laughs> I mean, yeah. That I mean, that's that's dedication. And if you've never, if any, for any of you guys out there who have never looked at it, definitely go do that. Uh, that's you know, to ta- one thirty second Tamiya Mustang and Corsair done entirely in grayscale. I mean, that's hardcore. That's- when this goes out, we've got a website. We'll have to get some of this stuff and some of yours up there, Matt. So well, we need to get we need to get Fetch on here. Yeah, um, you get too. <laughs> we we need to get him on here because he's just an all around cool guy and just ridiculously talented. Like he plays the guitar and cooks escargot, and he, I mean he's just you know he's just one of those guys. Don't you hate guys like that? I <laughs> just do everything, can't they? The kids. Yeah, ridiculous, ridiculous. <laughs> and he lives. I mean, he lives in France. He's got this stone house with this giant, you know, studio. I mean, yeah, come on. I'm super jelly. I'd like to talk to him about his problem solving thoughts. I mean, that's that's. I haven't seen the work, but the way Matt's describing it, like we all, I think we all enjoy problem solving. Like, there's a certain thrill whenever you're, whether it's, you know, technique or or actual physical modeling, um, when you do sort of get it right. You're like, ha I've done it. <laughs> um, I feel like half time I'm more like, holy shit, that worked. Yeah. I'm like- always suspicious because as soon as I think that, I, I post it and every, every dudes are like, no. What the, what the hell are you on about? <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. But there are some people who problem solve in a, in a, on a level, even within this hobby, where we're just like, what are you, what, how does your brain work? Fanch is a is is like he so I kind of was the one that tweaked him on starting to use Fusion 360, and he you know I was like yeah because I was like yeah dude it's not really intuitive it's going to frustrate you for a while and then like the next day he's making (laughs) he's he's making you know F18 parts and then he he decides that he can't do what he needs to do with seat cushions and other soft surfaces in Fusion 360. And he's like, okay, well, I'm just going to use Blender. And everybody's like, well, Blender's really hard to use, man. It's horrible. And like, again, five minutes later, he's got these 3D printing seatbelts. So I think he might be an alien. (laughs) Him and uh, Moraine Van Gils, both of them, just find him and... (laughs) find out what they're yeah. drinking or eating i don't know it's fun to watch whatever it is it's fun to watch yeah, for uh, sure. and see those guys at work for sure so matt what's what's uh you know you got any burning thoughts in mind uh you know any uh, particular things you want to get on about while while you've got the platform yeah so i wanted to get back to what you were talking about in terms of when we're thinking about people in the hobby we would recognize as artists and how 
very few of them are aircraft builders, it seems. Um, I have theories on that. None of them are in any way, shape, or form um, supportable by you know any sort of hard evidence. It's just kind of more what I see and I think. Perfect. We love that. Yeah. Yeah. Just talking out of my ass. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so I think of one part of it is armor interacts with the organic environment in a way that nobody can realistically deny. Like tanks drive on the ground and they get dirty. And we all we are all familiar with that. Yeah, and we're all familiar with the way that ground vehicles can get dirty because we've driven by construction sites and we've driven on muddy roads and we've seen probably at least some kind of tank-like thing up close at some point in our lifetime. And so there's there's almost like an intuitive understanding of the way that things can happen on those that uh, that makes weathering more permissible. And on the aircraft side, I have never seen more fussy pants, goalkeeping bullshit <laughs> in terms of like what can and can't happen to an aircraft. No crew chief, whatever. Yeah. No crew chief, whatever. I've worked on, you know, I've worked on a runway for 30 years and I've never seen a panel line in my life. And it's like, here are 2000 pictures of fucking panel lines. They're right there. <laughs> here are, you know, here are bolts that have been shipped back to exposed metal. Here is rust on an aircraft. It like, I don't know how it happened, but it's there. Um, you know, and so I think I think there's a bit of that, and I think there's also some uh, some more like color Nazism that happens in the aviation world as opposed mm-hmm. to armor, because everybody understands like you know Cold War Soviet tanks were green, but you put a thousand of them next to each other, and you'll find a thousand different shades of it. Whereas people get very persnickety about you know th- is this the right light gold gray? This one's a little bit too dark. This one's a little bit too red. And so that, I think, leads into the point that Chris was making about everything pushing towards that, that middle without, without the really interesting highlights and shadows and contrast because it's find the right olive drab or it's find the right RLM 76 or whatever it might be and then just paint everything that. And I think that a lot of the aircraft modeling community kind of subconsciously uh, boxes themselves into that, and that sets up a thing where it's. I, I think if you're just following like a cookbook, it's tough to ascend to any sort of artistic level. We may be bringing artistic techniques into it, but it's really tough to break out of that if it's okay. That it has to be this olive drab and no change from that. Well, it's like as my buddy Carlos Mendez says, and if you don't know who Carlos is. Uh, an amazing artist, one of those guys that's just ridiculously talented. He's a tattoo artist. He's a painter that does gallery shows. And he's an amazing, wait for it, armor modeler. <laughs> and his comment to me one day was, uh, yeah, aircraft modelers are just so procedural. And it seems to be true. It's, it's you know, it's like follow a recipe, follow the color plate uh, and, uh, it's, it, you know, it's frustrating because I, I think there's just, I mean, there's just so much more there. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, I'm gearing up to do the new Tamiya F4B when it comes out and I already have my, my subject picked out and I have one reference photo of it. It's not a great one, but it's, it's pretty decent, but it's one that it's interesting to look across the surface of it and see there is not one single color of gray on it. There are like 40. And they're all some slight variation of like gold gray, but it's like some panels are completely different colors than others. There are touch-ups that are obvious. And 
it's a level of nuance that I don't think I've ever seen on any modeler's high vis phantom before. Like on a low vis, where you know you expect the level of battering and whatnot, yeah, that that happens. But uh, I'm taking that one on maybe as an, as a challenge to get out of that middle ground and try to push it a bit more from the contrast perspective and the and the wear perspective. And I don't know if it'll reach the level of art, but it's you know I think it's it's one where it's worth trying to break the whole procedural thing a bit more than I have maybe in some of my past builds. How much do you think scale has to do with it? I mean, because I think it's legitimate to say that, look, at 135th scale, it's a lot easier to show nuances in in in, in a finish than it is at 172nd, for example. Yeah. Um, I've seen people do some amazing things with like, I mean, that's, there's a uh, 135th scale Millennium Falcon going on, going around right now that just got finished. That is amazing. That has all kinds of interesting stuff going on on the surface. I would say a lot more than I see on most. Is it one forty fourth is the main scale for the Falcon? I think, you know, a lot more than like your your standard Bandai build. And so I, I think in those smaller scales, it takes a very deft hand to pull off weathering convincingly. Um, once you get up to one thirty fifth and things like that, I think it certainly gets easier. But I would say an air, I mean, an aircraft, you know, anything larger than one seventy second scale variation and subtlety isn't out of bounds at all and even in 172nd it depends on again the quality of who's wielding the paint and you know also the subject and the size of the subject because i think there's been like a 172nd scale bf 109 and a 172nd scale b29 for example like you know one is a much much larger canvas to work on and so that's going to have some some different rules going on as well do you think part of the problem is that i think too many modelers particularly aircraft models are risk averse Oh, yeah, when you talk sure. about doing your, your paint, the um, you know tank, the rainbow, and talk about wanting to go and try that thing with the the new F four of, of the different panels, you might not necessarily have a you know you might have a, a vague idea in your head of how you're going to do it, but until you get onto it, I'm betting you're not quite sure exactly how you're going to tackle it, but you're willing to have a go at it and try it. And I think too many modelers are worried about ruining a model, like this model is going to be their last one ever, and they have to get it exactly right. There is, I think there is a, I, I would agree with that. I, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just risk aversion in general. They, you know, there's, there's a tendency to find a system that works and stick with that system and build nothing but things in that system over and over and over again. Um, maybe adding or subtracting little tweaks here and there over time, but it's certainly, uh, you know, it, it certainly, yeah, does seem to lead towards that whole procedural aspect i'm just talking about risk aversion i'm going to ask a question because i don't have the experience to contribute with an actual comment but um uh, i i do build aircraft but you know they're 172nd scale i don't really weather them because they're too fucking small i, I build them as an exercise to build airplanes that i like to have in my collection i have to protest you're not being fair to yourself. You're building civilian stuff mostly at that scale, right? So yeah. not naturally going to get a lot of weathering. But well, it depends like, on the civilian stuff. Yeah, and it, it also, you know, as an armor modeler, I have to ask myself the question, do I, do I scratch that itch with armor modeling? And is this just kind of the, the yin to that yang? Just building something clean, painting and decaling it, and just being like, ah, that's nice, and putting it in the cabinet. But... I'm going to ask a question, and I apologize to aircraft modelers if I am wrong. 
<laughs> Here we go. What? <laughs> Never uh, apologize on this show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fuck it. Here we go. Um, isn't there also the risk that if you do something daring with your weathering and even have you know, something to support it, that the, the aircraft modeling community is just going to shit all over it. Oh, my for sure. God. So, um, yeah, so that, that had to have happened with armor at some point, right? I, I vaguely recall. It still happens with armor. I mean, it happens yeah, every day. Sure. I see it every day. Nobody, nobody listens to the people who are like, that's not realistic. You're just like, shut up, grandpa. Yeah. But, they're different orthodoxies, aren't there? In armor, it's, it's generally accepted that you can push it. And in aircraft, it's not but yeah. there, there was a time when there was a lot of pushback from armor modelers about that's not the way a modern tank would look. And it's like, open a book there. You know, they, they go through training, they get mucked up. Um, and gradually that, that sort of shifted to where the people who build a clean armor model are, are they're very uh, kind of on the fringes where in aircraft modeling, things are weathered to an, an extent and no further. Mm-hmm. Well, when is that pendulum going to swing? And you see a lot of guys say things like, well, I really like the restrained weathering. Yeah, and, and I look at those and I'm like, what weathering? <laughs> you put a panel on watch on it. That's not weathering. Yeah, oh. some, guy, some guy posts his work and announces he did his weathering with oils. I spent six hours weathering this with oils. And you're like, Where? what did you do for the other five hours and 59 <laughs> minutes? In, in the, uh, so in the last presidential election like during the primaries i think somebody asked was it was it mayor pete maybe uh it was like um you know how are you going to work with republicans blah 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 and he said something to the effect of like and so and so he said no matter what we do they're going to call us socialists so we may as well just do what we think is right and i I hate to bring politics into modeling but i think just like the quote and the intent behind it makes a ton of sense because it's the same thing with weathering like i could build something and just put a panel line wash on it and it would be too much for somebody and somebody would be bitching about it even if I had reference photos showing like, you know, an air crew in the Pacific in World War II applying a panel line wash to a Corsair or something, which, yeah, I don't think they actually did apply panel line washes, um, you know, but if there was a theoretical photo like that and it was like, here's proof of this exact situation, uh, somebody would still bitch about it because they'd worked on a civilian airfield in the Midwest for 30 years and never seen salt weather. You know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, and so... It just, yeah, it's it's a it's a thing that I have long since learned to just kind of tune out. But I feel like the finger wagging brigade is a lot bigger in the aircraft side of things, and I don't I don't know why. I think I think part of it is again because armor has that sort of close interaction with the organic world that we don't need to be told about really because it's like we see it, we understand it sort of intuitively. We think or, we do anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was like I used to offer it for a ton of you know for for a ton of the years, and so I have a really good sense of how mud flows on certain things, or at least the mud that I've driven in, and I know what you know rocks do, and I know what rock damage and you know scratches and things look like, but I have not spent any time on an aircraft carrier on deployment. I have not spent any time in extremely primitive conditions on a Pacific atoll, um, you know, dealing with fixing an aircraft in a typhoon, like. You know, I, I don't have the relevant experience there, and so I have to rely on references and whatnot. But I think because it's it's like a different weathering situation happening with aircraft, you know, I mean, what happens with the UV radiation at 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 feet is a lot different than what happens on the ground. 
you know, flying through sand will dent the leading edges of a wing. Like we don't have that experience in the day to day. And I think, I mean, honestly, even like most, you know, most people who even work around planes maybe don't because, you know, flying an airliner is a lot different than flying a little fighter again off of like a Pacific Atoll or a desert strip in North Africa. And so because it's a, it's a bit more of an alien situation, I think the naysayers maybe have a, a bit more of a, uh, of a beachhead just because it's not as, it's not as easy for the average person to just tell them to shut up and that they're being stupid. That's true. And, 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 but you know, the, the defense is always, as, as you have pointed out is reference photos. Yep. And, and <laughs> those are some of my favorite threads and why we pretty much encourage those yeah. in SMCG when somebody says something and the carpet bombing of reference photos commences I've gotten some of my best reference picks from those threads. So in a way, I don't want those guys to go away because they're so entertaining and because, hey, you just never know. You might pick up that that yep. uh, that gold mine reference photo that you've been looking for for your, for your P47. So it's good stuff. This touches on something that I think Tracy will recognize, another art thing. One of the things you're taught at art school is the difference between looking and seeing. They teach you to observe. So um, you say, uh, like, if you do, like, um, what's it called? Still life. You know, you know, I don't know what fucking apple looks like. Apple, orange, blah, blah. And they go, no, no, no. Look at it. And they teach you various things, uh, various exercises, like negative space, where when you draw something, you draw the spaces between objects, not the objects, and things like that. And I think a lot of modelers and a lot of these guys, no crew chief, whatever, fall into the i see it a lot with ship models actually where they do see they fall into the habit of thinking i know what that looks like so they don't go and look at it and they make it based on the image in their head but i think matt from listening to you it sounds like you're an observer that you actually when you want to know you actually go and look at it and you really look at it and i think that's the thing a lot of models don't do if they do look at something it's either to confirm a bias or it's just to go well yeah mud muddy mud 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 they know yeah. the, how crusty is the mud, how, you know, they don't look deep enough, if you see what I mean. So, so, so I'm a, I'm a writer by profession and I was a history major in college. So I am extremely motivated by stories, um, you know, understanding how a thing happened and how, and more importantly, why a thing happened uh, is a, is a big part of kind of what drives my interest and going all the way back to like, you know, in high school, like learning history, it's, if I could figure out the whys of a period, like, you know, why did the United States decide to break away from, you know, Britain? Why did, hell, I don't know. Why did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, you know, whatever we want to go into. And I found that once I could understand that and understand the central story that everybody involved was telling themselves heading into that, everything else just made sense. Like I didn't need to memorize dates and times and locations because they just fit into a story and they were much more interesting as a part of a story than it's just like a date that you had to memorize. And it helps, it helped me, you know, as I, as I got more nuanced in my history and then as I moved into like copywriting to see the shades and textures of things in ways that I could then describe as words. And, um, and so I think when it comes to looking at like references and things like that, a lot of it is I look at the references, I see, okay, there's a chip there or there's a smudge there or a leak there. Why is it there? What is the potential explanation? Like what, like how did it get that? 
you know, I've got a great photo of a, of a Corsair pilot from 1945. And he's like sitting on the wing of the plane, pulling on cowboy boots. And it's, it's an amazing photo. And it took me a while to figure out those are like his walking around on the ground boots. Like they're not what he flies in. And so because the ground is disgusting and mucky and torn up and you look at like the wing and it's got mud all over it. And so he, I'm guessing like flies in different boots and then gets out of the cockpit, slides those things on and hops off and he's done because they were all covered in mud too. But it's, you know, it's like those stories help inform how I approach what I'm going to do in terms of weathering and coloration and whatnot. So I, th- you know, I think sort of like looking at, you know, from an art school perspective, looking versus seeing, I'm kind of maybe coming at it more with that. I, I hate to use this fucking term because it comes up all the time in marketing, but I'm looking at it with like that maybe like storyteller's perspective, uh, which it's it's the right term. Yeah, I, it's one of those words that has been co-opted and bastardized, at least in in my line of work. So I hesitate to use it, but at the same time, I think yeah, it is the right word. Um, but I mean, it's, I think it's very similar to looking versus seeing it's, you know, it's what's the, what's the, what's the deeper, what's really going on. That maybe you don't notice on the surface. And I, I think maybe the, the big thing for me that we, you know, we, I feel like we skated right next to it a couple of times. Um, I'm very big on the idea of thinking in terms of layers. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, that's almost a whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly neglected by a lot of people. But that's actually, again, it plays into seeing versus like, I know what an apple looks like. Like, yeah. Do it, you though? <laughs> are, you, are you truly seeing the apple? Well, you know what an apple looks like and that drawing's going on the refrigerator, but you see an apple and that, that drawing is going on a wall of the gallery. That is the difference between like yeah. really seeing something and, and layers happen all around you. The mm-hmm. dust on your car and just it's everywhere. The late you can look at um, if you're in an urban environment, like anytime you see down near the base of a wall, like grime accumulating from rain splashing up and people walking by, like there's there's a story being told right there. And that's one of my favorite kinds of problem solving is like, okay, how do I replicate that? Mm-hmm. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's fun. I feel like aircraft modelers particularly don't layer. Armor modelers are used to doing, right, I'll do my fading, then I'll do my pin wash, then I'll do my dust, then I'll do my mud, then maybe yep. I'll go back and do a bit more fading. How do you think maybe layers are applied to, to aircraft modeling and how could people maybe look at doing more? Oh, damn. Uh, that, as well as saying, that is a whole episode. Um, <laughs> so when I came back to the hobby and was kind of, you know, maybe, I don't know, the first three or four years I was back into it, the predominant thing was pre-shading. So you would prime the damn thing and then you would trace all the panel lines and all the rivets and all that in black with an airbrush. Um, idiots did it with Sharpies and then they suffered. The <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you would lightly paint your color over that and you would hope that you didn't go so far or you would hope that you went far enough that it didn't look like you had a bunch of lines drawn on your plane but that you didn't go so far that you covered them all up and it just turned into like a uniform color. I was never particularly happy with this. It was A, a frustrating process. B, it felt like a process. And it was one of those things that you just sort of did because. And so I started playing around, I don't know, 2015 or so with, instead of just outlining all the shit, uh, starting to add various shading elements inside the panels as well. And so 
that eventually led me to instead of you know instead of this idea of like random squiggles all over the place over gray primer what if i just primed the whole damn thing in black and then started working in the color on top of that what would that look like and so that's kind of where uh the black basing concept evolved from was that whole idea and it's not my creation at all like i know that other people have primed things in black for you know ages but i happened to call it a thing that i think people understood and so that that helped it take off a little bit and it's funny because now i'm actually moving away from the whole black basing concept and to much more of like a layer 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 concept so on the uh, like on the p38 i'm working on right now for example it has a silver base for, mainly for chipping and also to support like the rivets on it uh but then instead of black beyond that it's like there's a dark brown and there's a light khaki and there's a different shade of olive drab and then there's another shade of olive drab and then there's like a tan and so all these different colors and tones and you know levels of brightness and darkness essentially building s- subtle layers in the paint on the way up to the final coat basically trying to get to a thing where it all looks like all you know it all looks in the end like olive drab it just looks like very battered, tired, worn olive drab that has a lot of character to it and a lot of depth to the finish. And I've, you know, it's like I did this, I did something very similar on the P40 that I finished not too long ago. And I think it came out really, really well. And it's also appreciating that some colors, you know, to get back to color theory, some colors just don't go down very well over black. Like tans, for example, suck over black. Uh, They have a tendency to cool out, which is always a problem. And so thinking in layers, I, you know, I was thinking like black up, but now I've started thinking from like, I don't know, maybe like the middle area sort of like up and down and like what would, we go, what would go better underneath, what would go better on top. And so it's setting up a much more, much more involved, much more time consuming for sure, but also much more nuanced approach to building the colors. And I think it's showing results. I will, I will be able to let you know in about two days once I get to the, the end of the uh, P38 journey that I'm on whether I think I pulled it off, but uh, it definitely requires maybe holding a final vision in your head and constantly tweaking on the way there. And that's something that I think just takes time to learn. It's, you know, it's some people have that skill or that, that ability to see in their head, other people like me, it's like, I just have to do it a couple times and then a couple more times. And then I start to see it. And it's kind of like, when you're trying to, you know, do a certain exercise and, you know, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to activate like that muscle in my back. Well, I can't feel that damn muscle. And then you do it like, you know, over a few months and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that muscle, I, I feel it now. I can actually control it now. Awesome. Um, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that it just clicks at one point and then you can start seeing things that way, but you have to put in the work to get there. Yeah, I would say repetition is is always going to sharpen your skill set. Yep. Uh, that's, that's what, if you switch back and forth from aircraft to armor. I wonder being primarily an armor guy, like what benefits that that sort of transfers over in terms of the way you think about weathering something versus what kind of problems it sets up from, from doing something one way and then the other kind of switching back to the other. But I wanted to talk a little bit about what you were talking, like the building up these colors on top of the black basing before you get to the final coat. Um, that's great. I mean, that sounds awesome. And that's color theory in action. I mean, your, your final coat that you're putting over that or what you're building towards, that's color harmony. That's color Mm -hmm. harmony right there. And people don't understand uh, switching back to armor modeling. Like 
when filters came around, people just could not grasp the concept of what a filter did. And no matter how, they still don't. No matter how many ways you try <laughs> now to it's just, it. It's just become a part of the recipe. It's become a part of the recipe. But it's, When do I put the filter on? Well, do you need a filter? Right. And why? Yeah. Why would you use it? You only use a filter before you do the gloss coat for the decals. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to that. It's the gloss coat, right? <laughs> I mean, your, your filter is, is creates color harmony by adding uh, one color ingredient that everything has in common. So if you, if you want to bypass the filter, then mix one color in with all of your camouflage colors. If you're lightening them all and you're lightening them all with Tamiya Buff, guess what? Tamiya Buff has given you some color harmony right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the other things I was thinking as you were saying this, because you, you say that uh, applying tans over the, the black, it, it really kind of grays them out and, and cools them down. Um, I saw Lester Plaskett do something really cool, and, I, and I've done it a few times, um, especially when my yellows get a little dull and I'm looking for them to have a little more vibrancy, is he took, um, uh, to me, a clear yellow and thinned it and just kind of did a little glaze. Nice. And it warmed it back up. So I wonder, like, when you're experiencing this frustration with the, the color cooling out on your panels, if that's not worth a try. I might have to give that a shot. I actually I actually thought about giving that a try on the PL01 um, when I was working on it, but I ended up just going back and just literally dumping yellow into the brown that I was working with, and that <laughs> that brought it back to. Uh, but yeah, I, I was thinking about that might be that might be an option for her because I've used that to like you know yellow up um, some of those Edward resin instrument panels before because they have a very cool white that they print all the gauges in for some unknown reason, yeah. and so. Yeah, using it's like a, slightly blue white or something. Yeah, and so using like a, I think I used like a clear yellow, clear orange mix on the last one I did, and it, it brought them to exactly where they need to be. So, yeah, that's like I definitely want to try that now. I want to. I've my next uh, one of the next tank the rainbow entries is actually I think it's the indigo one is going to be like a, a tan and indigo camouflage scheme, and so I think for the tan I might be able to actually put that to the test and see how it does. I think something you must be finding out on the, the tank, the rainbow, though, is there is no such thing as color opacity, apart from maybe black. So if you start from black, models will always look a little bit muddy and mid-range if you start from a black base. I think it depends what you do from there. Because, um, I mean, like, I, you know, I know that certain colors, if you... Yeah, there is no such thing as opacity, and sometimes they darken out. But I think if, if you account for that going into it um you know and then you can use the the darker base as essentially a shadow versus the highlights that you're putting down and then kind of using the final blend codes to bring all that together in a bit more of a harmonious fashion um but i I have i have definitely found that certain colors uh i would say maybe give less of a shit about black than other colors do uh all of drab and like you know light grays like what you would find on you know 80s to current era U.S. Navy stuff, they love going down over black. They they seem pretty happy. But then you talk about like a tan or um, I think the most interesting one is glossy blue goes down great over black. It is, it's a very dark color, but it's very dark over black too. But if you try to put it down over like silver, it goes in this weird like 
sea green aqua kind of color unless you're willing to put down like 20 coats to build it up it's a it's a very even over white it'll come out much too light you really have to pile it on but... yeah, yeah it's it's important to say that some of that also depends on your materials like sure. you know Matt you and I work almost exclusively with MRP which you know, I don't think it's necessarily true of all lacquers, but MRP is relatively translucent compared to some other things. I mean, straight out of the bottle. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's, you know, like, like with you, I'm moving away from black basing myself because I feel like sometimes I'm starting behind the eight ball and it just ends up being this laborious process to develop the color the way I want it to look. And if I'm starting with gray, for example, it's just it's just not as much of an uphill slog. Uh, so I, I think it's situational. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like for me, what was happening was because I originally described black basing not as a technique, but more as like an approach. Yeah. And so using a different color other than black, use, hell, using silver and then putting brown on top of it and starting from that. It's the same idea of having a different color underneath that you use to start building variation and nuance as you're painting up from that. It's just not black. And so I think that's, yeah, as, as you say, it's completely situational and it's treating it as an approach or as a, you know, as a mental model, as opposed to step one, apply a black primer, step two, do this, step three. You know, I, 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 I am consciously these days trying to avoid um, modeling by numbers just because I don't, to me, it gets very boring doing things that way. And to that point, I think like my, my Patreon group and I were talking about this on Saturday is, is I think a lot of guys make the mistake of feeling like everything has to happen before the blend layer when you're doing black basing or, or whatever color basing you're doing. And they get frustrated because they're, they've got this vision in their head of what they want to accomplish. And by the time the blend layer comes along, it's disappeared. They can't see it anymore. Yeah. Uh, either, you know, and, and, and my comment is, you know, don't, don't try to get everything underneath the blend layer. Think about it rather as a, as a continuum that, that goes from your, you know, your like, and what I like is the darkest tone to be at the very bottom and the lightest tone to be, to be at the very top. And the blend layer is in the middle and you're working in terms of before the blend and after the blend. And you do whatever, you know, like you, you do whatever you got to do to get to that final tone, overall tone that you want and don't get hung up on, on, you know, trying to make it happen in a certain way. I would, I would also suggest that there doesn't have to be just one blend layer. I mean, it's, it's, it's entirely what you're trying to do. And it's, I mean, it's basically thinking in layers and you can have stuff that's marbled on. You can have stuff that's stippled on. You can splash stuff down with a, with a sponge if you want. I mean, 100%. It's, you know, it's like whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get there. It's just, it's, it's more the, the mental disposition to think in, in those terms of layers and light and shadow and opacity. I think that's a critical point. I think I think layer thinking in terms of layers is one of the the most important things to getting that depth of finish and that and that level of authenticity that you see with like Adam Wilder's work, Mike Rinaldi's work, you know, Martin's work on you know uh, armor stuff. But you just don't see nearly as much of it on aircraft. So I think this is a great discussion for those guys who are looking to sort of push those boundaries. 
I think one of the easiest ways to build patina on armor, whether that's patina built out of uh, earth effects or, or anything, um, is something I was taught uh, in, in art school. Whenever I mix up a, a paint color, you put the paint color where it goes, and then my professor would be like, well, I already got it mixed up. Let's see where else it can go. And you can put things in places where they at first don't seem to work um, and then just keep working over them and they become kind of part of uh, the picture itself, the, the harmony of the picture. But one of the things that I do with armor modeling is, is if I'm putting on, you know, a, a dust wash as I'm finished with my dust wash going through panel lines and things like that, that's when I... Uh, use the underside of the hull or the back or the rear of the hull and I, I flick the paint on there but it by the time I'm doing that it's it's mostly thinner it's it's really almost nothing it's not wet so I'm not leaving uh -huh. big globules like I spit on the model but just tiny tents uh, of speckling all over it and I do that with just about every color I use and I think that's kind of a trick that aircraft modelers are missing out on when it comes to building up layers because it's a super subtle patina and it, I think it would work really well over the surfaces mm -hmm. of something as big and uniform as a wing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, especially things like, uh, you know, I've, I've been using more and more the Mac valve on my airbrush to do stippling type stuff as well. And it's exactly that type of situation. So if I, if I'm putting down uh, for example, that, I've been using this really wonderful 6K brown that MRP makes. It's like super dark, uh, super rich color. And when I'm done with all the marbling and whatnot that I'm doing, and I hit it with thinner, you know, it's like before I flush it out of the brush, I'll crank up the Mac valve and stipple that on in its own pattern. So it's creating more than just that like hazy marbling type thing. It's also putting little tiny dots of it everywhere that are heavily thinned. And then the thinner that's in that, sometimes reactivates what I've got on there already and it sort of sloshes it around just a little bit and creates even more variation. And like 95% thinner. Yeah, yeah. Crazy thin. Yeah. Um, and my whole, th like, my whole thing is I tend to do this with hardware store thinner, which probably isn't, probably isn't the, the, the nicest for the paint. Um, but I found that it actually, it, it's a bit harsher to the stuff that's underneath it. So it does shift it around a bit more, which is fine for what I'm what I'm after in that instance. Like I don't know if I would necessarily go with the hardware short thinner over like a, an already blended and painted wing, but as long as I'm just layering in the stuff before I start focusing in on blending it, then I think it works out fine. And you you can do the same thing. It doesn't have to be lacquers. I mean lacquers lend themselves to this. Yeah. But you can do the same thing with acrylics where you're using water or alcohol as your reducer. Mm -hmm. You can definitely do it with enamels when you're yeah, using Yeah, I mean, I use oils and, and lacquer yeah, sure. center. But I think one thing to, to touch on there that is an opportunity to build a different kind of texture is you're talking about how when you speckle that on, it sort of tends to reactivate and, and do some things with the paint that's already there. Um, I'll hit my stuff with a hairdryer and kind of set that initial layer. And then I'm speckling on top of it. And it's, I mean, there's just lots of cool yeah, shit yeah. out there. If you, if you have, you know, happy accidents as Bob Ross would say. Um, I mean, the great thing about tanks is 
you can flip it over and work on its belly and see what it's going to do. See, I think the same thing about aircraft because I think nobody should look at the bottom of an aircraft intentionally. So, <laughs> the, the sad thing though is, is the bottom of an aircraft is like the most interesting part. Yeah, but the first thing for me is like, I mean, I, I encountered it on the Corsair, I encountered it on the P forty. I just finished this, you know, earlier this year. There's all kinds of interesting stuff happening on the bottom, and I found that even if I go to like you know, go beyond stage makeup to like full on clown makeup for it and like super contrast. <laughs> um, like, you know, the, like the sand and grit that I had kicked up from the tires on the Corsair I did. Cause it was like a, it was a, uh, is it Okinawa they were based or Iwo Jima? I can't, I think it was Okinawa. Um, but you know, very primitive fields. They were kicking up mud all over the place. They're literally photos with like the lower wing just caked in mud and people loading rockets on them. Um, uh, and so I wanted to recreate that. And so I went with like a very, very pale, almost like dust colored mud, just kicked up all over at, you know, coming out of the, out of the gear base from the tires, sloshing stuff everywhere. And when you put it on its, when you put it on its back, it looks ridiculous. It looks so stupid. I didn't think I, it looked, no. It, it's very stark. But then when you put it on its wheels, like the way it should be, you can barely tell it's there. Even if you shoot from a low angle where it's, where it is visible, it's like, it just vanishes. But some of that is because your brain does not like to see the thing upside down. Yeah. And that's what you have to do to, to, to view the bottom of it. And and then maybe there's just still some of that reticence. You know, there's that, that thing in the back of your brain that's going, you can't weather your airplane like a tiger. Oh, no, I was fine with that part of it. <laughs> I, I think it's okay. – I think it's like um, – it, it's shadow, isn't it? It shadow – blends the tones a bit it's the same with cockpits yeah i always think you should paint cockpits a bit cartoonishly with really high contrast because then when you look into it it's so dark in there yeah. that with the shadow it looks yep. right if it didn't everything just sort of disappears and it's the same with the underneath i guess of the course i've been doing that for the past like i don't know two years or so with my cockpits and everybody always moans when i first put down like the first layers of dust and stuff in there because it's like that's really dirty it's like it'll it'll work out trust me um, I think with, with the undersides, another element is that viewed naturally, so viewed like while it's sitting on its wheels, the only real view that you get is at a very shallow angle. And so that makes it extra tough. It's the shadow plus the shallow angle, I think, kind of throws that all off. And it's frustrating because, the, you know, to Will's point, that's where a lot of really interesting things happen on aircraft. And, and it's, it's also true for the same reasons that the reference photos we have of the undersides are equally limiting. You, you, you have to extrapolate yeah. a little bit. And I do think that's difficult for a lot of, a lot of guys, aircraft guys in particular to sort of figure out, okay, yeah, I know that mud splatters off the wheels of my Land Rover and does this and that or the other. Now, how can I extend that to what's going to happen on the bottom of my right. aircraft model? And I, I get it. I mean, that can, do you feel like it would have been um, less sort of jarring to your eye if if it had been if it had, had context like on a base would it just I'm just curious would a base married to the weathering that you've done to the model just make it all click a little better maybe um, then I would have had to make the base <laughs> I'm so lazy about base making um, especially with something like the size of a 132nd Corsair that's just a that's a, a task that's uh, a big base yeah that's also, the Corsair's already big. You put a base under it as well, and you know, you must be looking at what twelve inches. Oh yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, it's like a lap. I mean, base would be the size of a laptop, and that then I'd still have like wings hanging over it probably. I tend to when I do bases, I tend to like doing them with my smaller subjects. Like I have one for a uh, for an AML ninety, and it's just like a little. I doubt it's even five by seven. I don't know for some reason I enjoyed working on those a lot more. I seem to. Uh, I have I have rabbit holes that I get into with bases as well. So I'll endlessly tweak the, like the layout of it, and then I'll get pissed off at it and just chunk it. So. If I have a smaller subject, uh, I can't really do that as much because I'm a bit more limited, and I can do things like cut it into weird shapes. So it's not, you know, your typical. I bought a frame at Hobby Lobby, and I took the glass out, and here's the, you know, here's the tank. Um, yeah, because I like the the AML '90s one is like a weird trapezoid type shape, and everyone's like, "That's a weird shape," and it's like, "I I think it'll work though," and it ended up working out pretty well. So. All right. Well, we we have covered a shit ton of ground with this second half or second installment of the interview with you, Matt. We've given our listeners uh, some some pretty uh, you know some pretty thick red meat to chew on, but we have to we have to get to our standard question that we're going to ask everybody on on the Sprue Cutters Union podcast as kind of a wrap up. Gloss before decals. Uh, I only ever dip my aircraft in a 55-gallon drum of future. (laughs) Um, Well, I've been doing it for 30 years. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've been doing it, yeah, pretty much since Shep Payne showed me a long time ago. Um, No, it it, basically for me, it's situational. Most of the time, I do not think glossing is necessary. Um, I have seen decals put down over sandpaper. Like, (laughs) (laughs) guilty. you know, I, I've put down decals over all kinds of different surfaces and I've had them go down fine and I've had them fuck up over all kinds of different surfaces. Um, I think it comes down in a large degree to the decals themselves. And so if you're using thick, shitty decals, it doesn't matter really what you put them over. You're going to have some challenges getting those dealt with. And because of that, the only times that I really focus on putting some sort of clear coat down are when I need to protect the surface or when it's something like HGW wet transfers that do need a nice gloss surface to kind of suck to in the right ways. Um, True. Because you know, I've tried putting those down over just like a smooth but not glossy surface, and it's very hit or miss whether the transfers themselves stick. So I will do a gloss in that instance, or like I'm going to be putting something down on the P38 because it has all the hairspray on it, and I don't want to shift hairspray around with um, you know various decal solvents. So that's basically the only times I will consider it is when there's something else beyond the decals that could, uh, that could cause complications. All of which is a hundred percent relevant. I mean, there's, there's definitely reasons where, when it makes sense. And, and I think that, that you said the most important thing there, it's situational. You know, there's, there's, we see this trope constantly. You must always Use a gloss because it is guaranteed to prevent silvering. And that's, I mean, on the face of it, it's just based on false logic. Nobody's ever proven that it prevents silvering and nor will they ever be able to because every decal is a unique experiment. I mean, we've all seen from the very same sheet, you've got decals that behave differently all going onto the same surface. And, you know, who knows really why? I mean, I don't think it's something that science is going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out, (laughs) but we know it's true. 
uh, and you know, and that being the case, I think it's important to not to get you know caught up in, in in any dogma about that. If only, yeah. Unfortunately, there's a uh, there's the online community to to navigate. Hey, they keep it fun. They keep it fun. And this has been a lot of fun. I feel like we have been really lucky to have you on as our as our inaugural guest for this little podcast adventure. Um, you know, we don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know if this is going to be successful or not. But our goal is to present the, our listeners with 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 some depth and some humor and 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 really get into the minds of of the people that we interview and i would have to say that on that you know in that respect this has been a, a successful kickoff so we really appreciate you taking the time yeah to thanks for it. having me on and say uh, it's an honor to, to get to go first or well i think it's an honor Tetra Model Works are a leading producer of premium photo etch sets for all kinds of modeling genres. From armor to ships to aircraft and more, they make some of the best PE you can buy. And I know because I use it myself. I love it so much I even sell it in my own store. The design is outstanding. Sharp and clean detail, well-designed folds and easily constructed assemblies. Easy to use, their high quality brass is just the right thickness and strong so it won't break on you. Their sets provide the maximum of detail, but never with parts you don't need or can't use. Instructions are clear and very easy to follow. Sold in hobby stores around the world, just look for Tetra Model for the very best in photo etch and accessories. You can find a full list of their distributors at tetramodel.com. That's tetra, T-E-T-R-A, model.com. Uh, what an incredible interview with Matt. Tank the Rainbow is something that I would never in a million years do myself. But man, am I excited to see the results of what he's doing. Um, it's not many people who will set out to uh, undertake something like this with the knowledge that half of what they're going to end up with is failure. And with the mindset of learning from those failures as much as you are learning from your successes. So I think he's pretty brave. And again, I, I'd never do it, but I'm I'm really anxious to see where he lands after finishing this this project. I am too. I want to see how they how the, how it all comes out when they're weathered. But to your point, you know, there's a lot of guys who are just, you know, they're focused on how many models can I crank out in a year? And that's fine. That's cool. You know, it's more than one hobby. But I think, you know, that it's it's just impressive and to the point that Matt is spending that much time and energy to do what is it six or seven just purely as an exercise in in learning about color Uh, and that's you know that's taking things to a depth far too few modelers will in my opinion yeah and he's also doing something that chris had mentioned before where he's really getting to know his materials in a way that i mean i can't claim he'll come out on the other end probably the better understanding of the materials he's using than i have because i don't take those kinds of risks. I, I know my materials and I know how they work, but, 
but it's going to be, I think, pretty interesting to see where he comes out on the other side as far as knowledge of his materials. I think it's a really interesting original experiment. I haven't seen anyone else try anything this uh, out there in modeling for a long, long time, which is, you know, people do crazy stuff all the time. But the point of it is it's not crazy, it's smart that he's really using it to learn about the materials, learn about color, learn about uh, contrast and complementary and tone and shade and uh, warm and cold, and you know, saturated, desaturated. He's going through all of that on these models and really um, pushing it in a way that most modelers wouldn't even think to do. They just get the paints off the color chart that came with the kit and paint the kit. And, you know, to see someone doing this really questions my belief that modeling isn't art. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good then he's done it he's done a solid solid bit of work as far yeah, as yeah he's not one <laughs> <laughs> well i i also you know we've already recorded a couple of other interviews al murray being the next one that's going to drop after this and we ask al murray the same question and al you know his perspective is something that um even though during matt's interview here i claim to have hard opinions on on that subject when you hear somebody like Al Murray giving his opinion, you have to stop and think like, oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's, that's a thing too. You know, it's, um, I don't really want to get into this, into that interview ahead of time, but yeah, I agree that that interview and Matt's interview have both really made me think about what I think about where the modeling is are. Both of them made some really interesting points. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And if we're getting our listeners to think, you know, equally, then that's, you know, that's what, that's our goal accomplished. And and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the Al Murray interview, because that is coming up. And I think, I think our, our listeners are going to be, I think you're going to find it pretty compelling, uh, because, you know, his approach is to me was just so refreshing. I went into it with a sort of preconceived notion about, you know, here's a guy who's pretty famous and he's on TV and he just happens to be, a, you know, make models in his spare time. And it really turned out to sort of be the other way around. And we, we got into some pretty deep shop talk. Uh, so I think it's I think it's going to be it's going to be compelling. Well, him and Matt are both people that really think about what they do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they both 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 interviews underscore the idea. You just mentioned it, Tracy, about risk taking. And, and I, I, you know, I, I feel like you guys do that, that we see far too little risk taking in model making. There's, you know, certain parts of the community that, that actually discourage risk taking. Um, there's, a, you know, the gatekeeping that we were talking about. Um, there's, there's a lot of that. You see these, you know, guys make these comments like, well, I really appreciate the restrained weathering. And people, people posting about, you know, why are so many of these models so overweathered? And, and that is dampening the, the risk taking spirit. And, and I, I, it just really raises the hair on the back of my neck. I do actually think that for me, um, what Matt is doing and, and the conversation that we had with Al Murray, who, who kind of takes an unorthodox approach to, to modeling, it's, I'm not going to be painting my next tank bright orange, but I am going to be looking at the, the way that I already know how to achieve certain things and thinking, is there another way? Is there a different way? I mean, my next challenge is the one that's on the bench right now, ultimately will 
have it will have never been used in combat. It, it's you know it was a it was a real thing that was built at the end of World War II, but it wasn't used in combat. So I can't just paint the camouflage and throw a little dusty layer of pigments on it and be like, well, okay, there we go. That's not the way I work. I have to have a challenge. So I think the challenge for me is how to achieve some cool patina and light weathering, but still push myself and and my material, my technique, whatever uh, you want to call it. But I think that's one of the things that Matt's interview and Al's interview has got me thinking about like, okay, what, what can I squeeze in here? Like, what can I do to achieve the result that I'm after, but also provide myself with enough of a challenge to really enjoy the build and, and be really super stoked about the, the end result. To find different ways to make it compelling. Yeah, but just for myself. I mean, yeah. I could go through the, the routine of what I know how to do, and I'm sure I'll do a lot of that as well, but I'll be looking for ways to do something fun and different. I'll be looking for a way to challenge myself a little bit. So I, I hope that anybody who listens to these interviews Obviously, you know, you're not going to paint your, your Corsair uh, lime green, but might. <laughs> you, might, uh, you could for sure. But, you know, at the very least, maybe it, it just shakes up the foundation of what you do and, and you know, alters your routine enough to, to give yourself a, a challenge. And I think that's that's really good for the life of, of the hobby for an individual. I think all of us fall into a rut sometimes of just doing things the same way time after time after time I, even if you you're someone that wants to improve particularly when I get to weathering I can fall into this thing of okay so I do this and then I do that and then I do that and then I do that and it's the same routine every time and um it, yeah you've got to shake yourself out of stuff now and then because if you don't try something different you'll never be surprised and you know a lot of the joy comes from happy accidents as Bob Ross would say yeah. <laughs> and the old the old cliche goes you know if you do the same thing the same way you get the same results and you don't want to get the same results you want to get better results yeah or you you know your whatever you're building could have a different effect um that you're going for and then you sort of you can't use the same formula over and over again if you as long as again one of the things we talked about in the interview was the difference between looking and seeing yeah if if you're working from your reference and you go through your um, your routine of weathering, then you're not really looking at your reference. You're you're creating what you know how to create out of your head. But yeah. I think if you go back to your reference often enough to see, okay, well, I'm not achieving this cool patina. I'm not achieving this result. Like, how do I do that? Um, to just push yourself a little bit you know, your reference can push you, I think, a little bit is if you really um, look and you really yeah. see what's going on and then you look and see what's going on with your model, then maybe your technique changes in order to achieve that result. Absolutely. And that, that gets to one of the things from the interview that you know, kind of tickled me in the back of my mind and, and made me resolve to pay more attention to it in the future. And that is the thinking that you know what something looks like and just moving forward without taking the time to go and observe, whether that's real life or, or in your references or whatever. 
And, and it's a bad habit for me. Like I'll be sitting at the bench and, and it's time to mix up some paint. And I get into trouble with insignia on this all the time because I usually end up mixing colors for insignia. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, yep, that looks great. And I spray it. And then I come in and look on my computer at a reference photo and I'm like, shit, I missed that color completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to go back and fix it. And if I had, you know, just taken a minute to be more observant and not just, you know, plow ahead based on what I think I know, you know, then I would have saved myself some effort and then come out with a better product. One thing that could be really useful with reference photos is an old art trick that you place a grid over your photo and you look at one square in that grid at a time, because then you don't see the whole, you focus purely on that one thing. I have learned that even though I am, I really am pretty obsessive about reference photos, like collecting them for me is just another hobby almost. And I study them obsessively, but I find that I tend to study my reference photos subject specific. Like I'll be thinking, okay, tomorrow I'm going to do exhaust stains. So I'll go and I'll look at the P40 reference photo set and I'll only be looking at exhaust stains and I'll completely miss something else that I should be paying attention to. So I think, you know, to your point, you have to be aware of what your, you know, your, your tendencies are. And, and if dividing your reference photos into grids and, you know, whatever it takes, but it is all about being more observant. I think it's about being organized too. This is something that the longer I'm involved with this hobby and I'm, I'm maybe a little more unique that I only have one or two afternoons a week a few hours at a time to do any kind of work. So I I have to be a little bit more organized so I can keep the project moving forward. What I'll do, I'll keep a a small notepad um, next to the build. And as I, as I see things that I want to address um, or that I need to research or that I want to attend to the next time I'm sitting down, I just make notes. So I don't, I don't forget it. Um, So if you're running into things, uh, you could do the same thing with your reference photos as you're looking at stuff and you're noticing like, yeah, you're looking at exhaust stains, but hey, look at the chipping underneath the, the canopy. Like, okay, uh, make a note to, to look up a few more reference photos of that. Notes are super helpful. And a thing I picked up from Tom Morgan in order to organize kind of what I've done is I leave myself about 10 minutes at the end of every session and I have a Word document going on with whatever project it is, and I just make notes about what I did that day and then save that. And then when the time comes to, you know, if I'm going to publish an article about something that I've built, I don't have to start the Word document from the beginning and be like, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> I'm doing that now on five articles. <laughs> yeah. And it's like fucking Sisyphus pushing that rock up that hill. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I, I had a question about uh, one of Tom's builds, and he emailed me all of his build photos plus his notes, mm-hmm. and his notes were so well organized. And I thought, you know, this is smart. Work smarter, not harder. He's been helping me out a lot with the D1 build, actually. Really yeah, he's, he's an incredible researcher and super modest. But yeah. I think he's got a bit of a potty mouth, so he'll be fun to get on. And and talk to him. Um, yeah, Sounds he, like our kind of guy. Fuck yeah. Yeah, he really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, guys, if, is it uh, feels kind of like uh, we? It's time for us to wrap this thing up and give everybody a break from listening to all of our nonsense. What do you guys think? I think yeah, 
we're pretty much done and uh we'll see you next time right on yeah. well wait 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 before we go i do want to i, I want to say one thing i remind all or or, or let our listeners know about because i am super excited about it i know you two guys are like whatever bro but we have merch and we don't oh, yeah, want, yeah. we don't want to forget uh so <laughs> we uh, the, the truth is I just needed some new t-shirts. So, uh, got, a, I went over to Redbubble and we created some designs and, uh, you know, we don't make any money off of it to speak of, uh, I wouldn't even buy any of us a beer, but if, uh, you know, if, if, if the union members want to show their allegiance, they can get on over to redbubble.com. Uh, it's a super cool place where you can order all kinds of things, t-shirts, coffee cups, whatever. Uh, and look for sprue cutters. It's all one word. Uh, or you can probably do search on sprue cutters union, but we've got three t-shirt designs in there and, uh, they come in, you know, different flavors, different colors. You can get hoodies, uh, long sleeve t-shirts, whatever. So get in there, check it out and get your sprue cutters union style on. Also, we have a Patreon if you'd like to help support us and to, uh, Help us uh, pay all the costs of running the show and make sure yep. that we keep this uh, thing going. It is not free. We have learned that. It is not <laughs> free. There we are certainly learned. costs involved. So search for Sprue Cutters Union on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And uh, help us out. Thank you. And in addition to uh, in addition to the, the merchandise and the Patreon, I, I think I just really want to say thank you to everybody who's listening. Um, we've been really, really fortunate with how many people have tuned in uh that keeps our enthusiasm going and frankly i think i can speak for all three of us when i say we are totally surprised that anybody wants to listen to whatever we have to say <laughs> absolutely yeah but apparently yep. we asked the right questions anyway um I, I think we've got some some great people lined up to interview and i feel like we're we're kind of uh doing our own thing but our own thing has its appeal. And I think we all want to talk technique and talk nitty gritty and, and dive deep into what our, our friends and, and the people that we look up to are, are doing and what's in their mindset. So we're really happy that you're along for the voyage. And until next time, don't touch that dive.